Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. He really loved me. He was so fat. <laughs> you saw how fat he was. I don't care what I brought in this house. He just eat it up. I don't care what it was I brought in here. I bring some Popeye's chicken. That boy eat the whole thing. Before I even get a chance to get me a bite of the chicken, he just eat up. He would eat his little ass off. You ain't ever seen nobody eat like he would eat candy, gumballs. He made me take them over, over up there to the super Kmart, yeah. and he put them quarters in that gumball. Yeah. He had to wait till he get the red gumball. He, had to get, he always had to get the red gumball. You sound like a character, I guess. Get that red gumball, and he just eat all that red gumball. Good mother, I did, I did every single thing I could think to do. I, I was really good. I was really good. I was a good mother. I was really good. Mother. I ain't wanted to be fat like that. I do not want my baby to be fat like that because I know a black man in America, you can't be like that. I try to. It's official, the pandemic's rumored effect on America's waistline is real. A report based on new CDC data showed 16 states documented obesity rates of 35% or higher. That's an increase of four states in just a year. Moreover, those rates are rising faster among racial minorities. NPR's Yuki Noguchi reports. Fatima Cody Stanford is a leading obesity researcher at Harvard Medical School. She's long argued obesity's growing prevalence has not met with adequate recognition that it is a disease. And because it goes largely unrecognized or untreated, it does not surprise her that its incidence also continues to increase, especially during difficult times like these. When we look at factors that play a role in rise in obesity, we know stress is one of them. She says stress doesn't just affect exercise and eating patterns. It also prompts the body to store more fat. If anything, she says, the new data likely understate the problem. When patients are reporting or individuals are reporting their weight, they tend to underreport. So I think that this report will undercapture actually the degree of obesity in the U.S. Obesity is one of the fastest growing overarching health threats, both to individuals and the healthcare system. The pandemic laid bare how obesity makes people more vulnerable to hospitalization and death from COVID. At the same time, it worsened many of the social and economic factors that cause obesity, too. Nadine Gracia is president and CEO of Trust for America's Health, a health policy group that analyzed the CDC's 2020 data. She says larger investments in healthier school meals and greater access to recreation 
are necessary to combat what is essentially an accelerating problem. In the year 2000, no state had an adult obesity rate that was above 25%. Now, all but three states, Colorado, Massachusetts, and Hawaii, plus the District of Columbia, have crossed that threshold. The rates are higher in the South and Midwest. There are big racial differences, too. Nearly half of Black people and 57% of Black women have obesity. In the Latino population, the rate is nearly 45%. Among white adults, 42%. Gracia says with obesity comes a threat of diabetes, heart or kidney disease, and cancer. That adds to an enormous financial cost. We spend about $149 billion annually on healthcare costs that are obesity-related. Elena Rios is president and CEO of the National Hispanic Medical Association. She says more minority families face the economic brunt of the pandemic because they represent a greater share of low-wage or essential workers. I mean, there's just so much pressure on low-income families. Everybody has to pitch in and do something that they don't take care of their health. There are other community factors Rios points to as well. Fewer local options for healthy food, less access to health insurance and care. Our communities don't get the messages that you're going to have diabetes earlier, you're going to have heart disease earlier in your life, and by the time you're 30s and 40s, you're going to be on dialysis. That's the trend that's happening in our communities. Many experts see promise in new medications that appear safer and more effective than previous treatments. But few patients have access because most insurers don't cover them. Congress is considering legislation to allow Medicare to cover obesity drugs, Tammy Boyd is chief policy officer of the Black Women's Health Imperative. She says that would be a huge step. By Medicare covering, it's providing access. And it might spur other insurers to do the same. If Medicare covers, right, I think other plans will follow. And that might help curb the disturbing trend. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. The farmer in the dell, the farmer in the dell. Hi-ho the dairy-o, the farmer in the dell. Natalie is here with us as we share the stories from her book. And Natalie, for me, what is so deeply disturbing about the history that Clyde just detailed is how it continues to live on today. Just a few weeks ago, a judge halted a debt forgiveness program that was aimed to help black farmers who have for, as we have just heard, for centuries been the subject of economic discrimination. What happened Part of Biden's plan for black farmers included debt relief because for generations, literally almost 100 years, black farmers have fallen victim to the discriminatory practices deployed against them on behalf of the USDA. There are any number of cases where black farmers have applied for loans, their loans have been ripped up when they go to their local FSA offices, their loans are denied, or they're delayed. And what this has meant over generations is that Black farmers have not been able to pay back the loans that they were given, when they were given them, because when a loan is denied, a farmer can't plant his crop on time. If he can't plant his crop on time, he's not able to reap the harvest And if he can't reap the harvest, then he hasn't been able to pay back the loan. This has been a systematic and intentional strategy deployed by the USDA in order to disenfranchise black farmers. 
we should remind people that loans are a fact of life in farming. It isn't that people reach out for loans because they're less than or have less than. Because of the nature of the economics of farming, the initial investment at planting time is so great that farmers need loans every year to tide them over till harvest. Precisely. And most times people pay back those loans, including black farmers, when everything falls in place those farmers are accustomed to paying those loans back within 12 months so that they can begin with a new slate at the beginning of the next planting season and begin again. This is just a fact of farming. But in a case of black farmers, because the USDA has deployed all of these strategies to deny and delay their loans, this has led to this incredible land loss because when the black farmer has not been able to pay back the loan or restructure the loan, the government has come in and seized their land. So in recognition of this 100-year-long practice, Biden's administration, as part of their Justice for Black Farmers Act that was introduced by Raphael Warnock and Cory Booker, that plan included debt forgiveness as a way to acknowledge this long history of discrimination. And that policy had been approved, was moving forward. But white farmers and conservative legislators were outraged by this. They were outraged at the fact that black farmers were finally going to get debt relief and debt forgiveness. Stephen Miller from the previous administration joined forces with a conservative law firm And they sued the Biden administration, claiming that this act was an example of reverse discrimination because white farmers were not able to participate. And a judge has now halted Biden's plan to move forward with this debt forgiveness. It's not surprising that this would happen, but it is infuriating. I'd like to turn now to a particular story, the story of the Nelson family in Louisiana. Can you introduce who they are and what you found interesting in particular about their story? The Nelsons are a third and fourth generation black farming family in Sondheimer, Louisiana. When I first met Mr. Nelson, he began the day by sharing the story of his grandfather, Will Nelson, who was born during slavery and after emancipation moved to Simpson County, where they tried to purchase land because the man who had owned the land made a deal with them and said that if you work this land and you gradually you make these mortgage payments, basically, eventually I will give you this land. The day that Will Nelson was ready to make the final payment on this land. They wouldn't accept the last payment on it and uh, told them to get off the land, and they had to get off it in a hurry. Eventually, Mr. Nelson, who I spoke to, tells the story about his father. His name was Earl O.K. Nelson. Earl was frustrated by what had happened to his family, his father and his mother, and so he left Mississippi and moved to Louisiana and 
Unfortunately, you know, history repeated itself. Mr. Nelson told me the story of how a white man named Mr. Stokes approached him and his brother, O.K. Nelson, about buying a thousand acres of land that was really premium ground. The cotton payment off itself was going to pay the note on the land. So Mr. Nelson and his brother went to their local FSA office, the local version of the USDA. They approached these FSA, FHA officers with the idea of applying for a loan to buy this land from this white farmer, Mr. Stokes. Now I put it in way before Thanksgiving and I went ahead on and put in for my crop loan too. All that's supposed to be coming together. Here go January, February. For months and months and months, Mr. Nelson would go to the office to check on his loan application and they would tell him, it's coming, it's coming. Wait another month. So March, I went up there to check on my arm loan, crop operating loan, and then I also asked about the land loan. And uh, they said he was still in progress. So I went to the guy that was gonna sell me the land and well, he told me that they said I wasn't qualified to get the land and they had somebody else that wanted to buy the land. That land had been sold out from under him. He was cut out of the deal. When he went to his local USDA office, the officers there asked him all the questions about the land. Where was it? Who was the owner? How much land was it? And when Mr. Nelson revealed all of this information, thinking that he was doing this so that he could apply for a loan to purchase this property, this thousand acres, these USDA agents in this office who were white went around him, ended up sending another white guy to buy that land out from underneath Mr. Nelson. And the loan officers were such cowards that it got to the point that they actually were leaving through the back door when they saw Mr. Nelson coming. Mr. Nelson told me the story of how he and his brother went to the local USDA office. Mr. Nelson sat at the front door, his brother sat at the back door, and they waited for this loan agent to come out. And they sat there all day. And somehow this loan agent avoided them. And to this day, Mr. Nelson has never seen that man again. Adrian, when I met him, was 28 years old. He went to school and got a degree in business administration because he wanted to have that training. And when he came back to the farm, he was farming with his dad and his four brothers. And he shared the story of how when he went to apply for his loan, first they denied it. I sat across the desk from the lady I turned in my application. She turned it around, pushed it back towards me and said, you need to be farming for three years before you is able to purchase land. I told her, I'm not trying to purchase the land. I'm just trying to form the land. I'm renting the land. I'm trying to form it. And she turned around, pushed it right back to me again, said that I do not qualify. And we're not talking 10 years ago. We're talking three years ago this happened. Adrian went to the local FSA office to find out why his loan was being denied. He went with his dad. And this time, he 
had his iPhone with him, and he he told me how he slid it across the counter, and demanded to know why his loan wasn't being processed. And all of a sudden, the USDA agents there produced the paperwork and signed the loan on the spot. But he also shared the fact that oftentimes part of the strategy that the these local USDA officers、uh, deploy. Is to force black farmers to borrow more money than they need. I only requested about a hundred and ninety thousand, you know, for operating costs. They put in two hundred and ninety. The loan was almost maxed out. So for six hundred acres, there's no way you was able to pay back that amount of money. And then that's another opportunity for them to come in and seize these black farmers' farms. But you know, daddy. Disciplined us, and you know he showed us that even though you have the money, never to spend all your money. You know, only use what you need. Put some up for rainy day, and you know that's the principle that we live by to this day. What was your impression when you walked away from that day that you spent at Nelson's farm? I was inspired. I was filled with hope because. What you have to understand about the Nelsons and so many other black farmers is they have a vision, and they are not letting any of these obstacles impede their progress. They told me, "Miss Bazil, farming is in our blood." And like I said, these are young men. They bring so much resourcefulness and so much passion, so much. Ingenuity to what they're doing. I have every confidence that they will succeed. It's a fight. It's a struggle. But you know, I just I'm thankful that you know we have the discipline, the knowledge, the tenacity to keep on pushing through, regardless of what they throw at us. That was Adrian Nelson and his father Will Nelson, along with Natalie Bazil, sharing their story from "We Are Each Other's Harvest." Celebrating African American farmers' land and legacy. Talking about South Carolina, thinking about South Carolina. Thinking about South Carolina. Democratic leaders could vote as soon as Monday on the long-debated, long-awaited $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. This week, some lawmakers pushed to add more funding in the bill to reconnect majority Black and Brown neighborhoods that were torn apart by highway construction in decades past. And while the Biden administration has vowed to try to rectify these past sins, new construction projects are still a threat today. A plan to widen Highway I-526 would cut through parts of almost entirely Black and Brown communities in North Charleston, South Carolina. Omar. Mohammed is the executive director of the Low Country Alliance for Model Communities, a grassroots organization formed to address quality of life concerns in North Charleston, and he joins us now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So, this proposed highway project is called the West I-526 Low Country Corridor. So, exactly how many homes lie in its path, and what will happen to this community when this project starts? This project will be impacting about 200 homes、um, in four communities、uh, that are primarily African American low wealth neighborhoods. 
uh, this project uh, is designed uh, to improve the uh, regional economic uh, kind of transportation um, corridor of that area. I mean, what exactly will the expansion do to these communities? Those who are not being displaced by this project will be now closer to the road, uh, which will impact their quality of life. So you're talking about noise level uh, of pollution. You're talking about air air quality pollution uh, from, from living by, you know, near a roadway. Um, and this increases their, uh, their impact onto their health when it comes to asthma, when it comes to uh, a potential uh, a health or heart disease as well. So you talked about expressing some concerns to um, people in charge of this project. When you've spoken to them about the displacement of families, the health impacts, what have they said to you? Their immediate response is that they will they will look at it, they will they will study it, and, and, and they do. They provide that into what is called the environmental uh, impact statement, right? But a lot of times, um, it, it takes a technical background. It takes an understanding of, of the legal process to be able to process the information in environmental impact statement, right? What communities want is their quality of life improved. And this project disrupts that quality of life when it comes to being able to pass on generational wealth building opportunities for their family. So let's put this in some historical context. What can you tell us about how these projects have impacted generational wealth for Black families in North Charleston? Yeah, I mean, there is documentation uh, that shows that, uh, uh, particularly during the urban renewal, uh, a part of this uh, 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 of transportation systems and, and, and building out that infrastructure, there is historical evidence as well as um, uh, studies have been done where entire black and brown communities were wiped out, right, for the purpose of what, what is in the best interest of, of, of the whole. A lot of that was driven by um, racism, right? Um, it, it was driven to continue the idea, particularly in the southern states, uh, this concept and idea around uh, uh, separating black and brown communities from white communities. The highway project plan is not final yet. What's next for you and others trying to keep people from being displaced, especially as Congress and the Biden administration continue on this big infrastructure push? We're looking for policy solutions. And one of the things that we're asking of the Biden administration, as well as EPA, as well as the Highway Administration, is to look at how uh, the National Environmental Policy Act can be strengthened to involve cumulative impacts, because many of these communities are impacted not only by uh, a, a transportation infrastructure, they're impacted by rail, they're impacted by uh, uh, shipping uh, operations, um, other types of industry that, that operates on the periphery of their community. When you look at low wealth communities, it's just not a rural project. It is, it is also the health disparities that exist in, in, in these communities that will further be exacerbated by these types of projects. Omar Mohammed, Executive Director of the Low Country Alliance for Model Communities in South Carolina. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Now everybody's like, jails ain't tough enough. Jails ain't tough enough. We got to have a death penalty. Jails ain't tough enough. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, the U.S. Justice Department has released more than 30,000 nonviolent inmates to home confinement to try to limit the virus's spread in prison. But as John Yang reports, some of these men and women could be forced to return to prison once the pandemic ends. It is part of our ongoing series, Searching for Justice. In Micanopy, Florida, Rufus Rochelle has had his own room for the first time in more than three decades. I always was optimistic that freedom 
was going to come. But I didn't realize it would be 32 years, almost 32 years, before it came. He was in prison, serving a 40-year sentence for a 1988 conviction for conspiracy to sell crack cocaine and obstruction of justice. But that changed on April 24, 2020, when he was moved to home confinement. It was one of the best days of my life. And it was sad day two, because I was leaving so many others behind. Rochelle, now almost 70, was released under a provision of the CARES Act, which made more prisoners eligible for home detention in an effort to limit the spread of COVID-19 in federal prisons. Studies in the early months of the pandemic found federal and state inmates were more than five times as likely than the general public to contract COVID-19. The virus has claimed the lives of nearly 3,000 inmates. There's no way that you could practice social distancing when you got two men and sometimes three men inside of a cell, a room, stacked on top of one another. Those mosquitoes, man, terrible. But almost a year and a half after his release, Rochelle and about 4,000 others like him face the possibility of having to return to prison once the pandemic ends. That's because a Trump-era Justice Department legal opinion concluded that these men and women would have to finish their remaining sentences in prison once the pandemic recedes. Biden administration officials agreed with that reading of the law. I know of no instance in modern history where we have reincarcerated such a large number of people after they have been effectively released from a custodial setting. Allison Guernsey runs the Federal Criminal Defense Clinic at the University of Iowa Law School. She represents some inmates who were released to home confinement. I'm telling my clients, look, you need to be prepared for this. Here are the options. Here are things that could happen. But if we don't succeed, you may end up back in prison. In a statement, the Federal Bureau of Prisons said it will have discretion to keep inmates on home confinement after the pandemic if they're close to the end of their sentences. An administration official say President Biden is considering clemency requests for nonviolent drug offenders who have less than four years to serve. That could include yeah. Rochelle. Because of good behavior, he's set to be released next July. For now, he says he still feels very much like a prisoner. Uh, yes, it's Rufus Rochelle. I want to let you know we're getting ready to go to the uh, church center. I mean, two thirty. Okay. Mm -hmm. He wears an ankle monitor and must check in daily with his case manager and whenever he leaves his sister's house where he lives. Being on home confinement under the CARES Act is a sense of freedom, but I'm not free. I can't just go out there and say I'm going to walk or drive to the store. They already got that. He needs advance permission to do okay. that or to go to volunteer at his church's food pantry. How many of these they get? One. Okay. Or to visit family, including his 32-year-old daughter, Antoinette, who was born after he was incarcerated. I never spent one day with her outside of the prison. Not one single day. His sister, Cheryl Boland, gets emotional at the thought of him going back to prison. He done did all his time. He's still doing time. Every night he wondered whether he got to get up in the morning or go back up. It's just, it's just wearing down all of us. 
Rochelle, on the other hand, is philosophical. What do you think now that there's a possibility you may have to go back to the real prison? What does that, how does that make you feel? It saddens me what I realize. Everything that happens now is for a purpose. Right now, that purpose is advocating for clemency for those like him. Hello, my name is Rufus Rochelle. On most nights, he's on Facebook Live spreading the word. So why would you want to send individuals back to prison? Diane Marquez is a prime example. She has 30 years, 30 years. Imagine that, for marijuana, conspiracy. He's talking about 65-year-old Diana Marquez, who's also on COVID home confinement after about 15 years in prison for conspiracy to sell marijuana. That's enough, Michael. She was released in May 2020 and now lives with her daughter in El Paso, Texas. Hello, 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 Mr. Rufus. How are you? All right, how are you doing? How are you doing? She often reaches out to Rochelle for advice. You must explain your situation. You want to get your message out there loud and clear. Home confinement has given Marquez a chance to not only be with her daughter, Yesenia. How many times four give you eight? What is the number? Two. But also with two of her grandchildren and for them to be with her. I am getting to know my mom again because I was only 15 when she was incarcerated. So it's as if we're getting to know each other again. My children have, you know, their grandmother. They're getting to know each other. It's been nice. It's been nice. But Marquez can't bring herself to tell her grandchildren the truth about that monitoring device on her leg. They're so innocent. They I really don't want to inform what is the reason that I have the ankle bracelet in my, my ankle. And she says she's constantly worried about going back to prison. Knowing that they want to send us back to prison has been devastating me, especially myself. Losing my hair, having heart palpitations, and it would be devastating for my daughter, the one that I'm living with, because I help her a lot to take care of my grandchildren. While Marquez still has 10 years left on her sentence, she's hopeful the nature of her conviction involving marijuana, which is now decriminalized in 27 states, will improve her chances for presidential clemency. No, this house was uh, being built uh, almost 32 years ago. In Florida, Rufus Rochelle says he also remains hopeful. I'm not bitter, but there are so many Rufus Rochelles incarcerated that deserve their freedom and they truly deserve a second chance a second chance that has come about from an otherwise devastating pandemic for the pbs news hour i'm john yang in micanope florida you won't be smiling on rackers island Turn now to-
out to New York City and Rikers Island. It's one of the largest jails in the country, and it's facing a crisis. Eleven inmates have died at the facility just this year. Several of those deaths are suicides. They come as widespread reports have leaked, describing hunger, lack of medical attention, and violence. New York Attorney General Letitia James visited Rikers Island today and says it's clear that things have reached, quote, a breaking point. NPR's Jasmine Gars is based in New York City. She joins us now. And Jasmine, I want to start with what you've learned about the situation on the ground now, because Rikers has been a troubled place for decades. Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of issues here. To begin with, Rikers is overcrowded, which has led to a rise in COVID cases. Also, guards are not showing up. In August alone, officers failed to show up 2,700 times. And part of that is they say they are understaffed, so the shifts have become more dangerous. All this has led to reports of gangs taking over and people not getting timely access to food, water, or medicine. I understand you've actually been able to speak to some detainees. What have you learned? Yes. One man, James, he asked that we withhold his last name because he fears retaliation, told me this. We have no CO on our floor. Inmates are running the house. Um, People get beat up and basically control the house. Put fear into other guys. He says five, six days have gone by without a corrections officer in sight on his floor, which has around 20 men. So now it's just run by gangs. And he says he was assaulted recently. Now, to be clear, James is there awaiting trial. And that might be a surprise to some people, right? That there are people there who are just waiting for trial, not convicted, um, that many people at Rikers haven't even been tried yet. Yes, there are close to 6,000 people at Rikers. Over 5,300 are awaiting trial. Part of what's going on there is just massive delays in the criminal justice system because of the pandemic. But what I want to point out is that over 100 people at Rikers right now are on technical parole violation, which means they violated parole, but it wasn't a criminal action like they missed a meeting with a parole officer. And up until recently, that could get you sent to Rikers, which just changed a few days ago when Governor Kathy Hochul said people wouldn't have to go back into the system for a minor violation. We mentioned New York's AG uh, doing a tour there. Um, What are they saying? What's the official response to the crisis? New York City is now suing a union representing jail officers, saying... This mass absenteeism is, it it basically amounts to an illegal strike, which has endangered everyone at Rikers. Beyond that, there's been calls for federal intervention, sending the National Guard in, but there's no timeline for any of this. And then there's always talk of dismantling Rikers, which would imply building alternate facilities throughout the city, and that's gotten plenty of pushback. Uh, Earlier today, I spoke to Vincent Chiraldi, the commissioner of the New York City Department of Correction, who said this. We need to close this place. I think it's much, much better to have it in the communities. Volunteers can come, your family can visit easily. Basically, he's saying, let's get rid of this uh, out of sight, out of mind mentality that Rikers represents. Rikers exists and the people I've spoken to describe it as a very real nightmare. That's NPR's Jasmine Gars. Thank you for staying with this story. Thank you.
events tonight surrounding three women from the Houston area who are at the center of a video being shared around the globe. They're accused of assaulting a restaurant hostess in New York City after that hostess asked the group for proof they were vaccinated against the coronavirus. That's mandatory for indoor dining in New York City. But tonight, an attorney representing one of the women is telling our Jacob Rascone there is much more to that story. Jacob, what is that attorney saying? Yeah, by now you've seen the video. It seems to show a pretty clear picture of these women and the hostess in what the attorney calls a shoving match. But he said, not only is there another side to the story, what you think you know is all wrong. Three women from Houston attacked a New York City restaurant hostess after she asked to see their vaccine cards. That's what police said. What was told in the press does not reflect what actually happened. First of all, their attorney says all three women presented their vaccine cards and were seated inside the restaurant. Then the rest of their party showed up, three men who also presented their vaccine cards, but two did not have a photo ID and couldn't get in. So the entire group started to leave and a manager insisted they stay. This is when this woman started shouting out, racial epithets. It was the Rankins and other witnesses uh, confirmed this and um, the, the epithet was the N-word and uh, you know one of the women was called a monkey by this uh, hostess. The hostess, the attorney said, also lunged at the women first. That's when the video picks up showing what the attorney calls a shoving match. The story that his clients attacked the hostess over a vaccine card, he says, is fabricated. Well, that's completely false, and uh, that narrative has been used to criminalize these women and try to uh, uh, help Carmines and this host to save face uh, in the light of their bad acts. So the attorney representing those women also says that the initial responding officers assessed the situation, decided not to charge anybody or make any arrests, but that later other officers decided to make those arrests. The attorney wants those charges dropped against his clients, and he wants the hostess in New York City charged with filing a false police report. Live here in Houston, Jacob Rascone, KPRC 2 News. Oh, uh, I was... Uh... Looking, I don't know. I don't know if it was that te uh, uh, the television or my phone, and uh, I was aware that there are some non-white people who are rich classified as black in Mexico, but I didn't. I didn't hear what was going on, <laughs> and uh, come to find out, which everybody on the line probably knows, except for me that that was actually people from the part of the earth that's called Haiti that was in the area that generally were people from uh, Mexico would join up at to attempt to enter into the part of the world that's called the United States. And uh, in other words, you can just witness the desperation of people uh, that are literally a force to move from place to place. By now, you may have seen the images from the border. Migrants from Haiti corralled like cattle by American agents and wading across a swollen Rio Grande, sometimes with children on their shoulders. If they make it over, they're not likely to stay, as the Biden administration is deporting hundreds of migrants back to Haiti every day. 
For more, we have CNN correspondent Matt Rivers. He's on a bit of a dodgy phone line on the Mexican side of the river, but we have him. Hi, Matt. Hey, how are you? I, I'm well. Tell me what you see today. A lot of attempted crossings over into Texas? It's been really interesting over the last few days because, you know, migrants have been able to go back and forth between the U.S. and Mexico. There's encampments on both sides. And what we've seen from law enforcement officials um, are that basically they're allowing people to go from one encampment to the other. We've seen a rope that's been strung across the river that migrants have actually been using to go back and forth. And they're going back and forth, sorry to interrupt, to get supplies, to get food. Why would they cross over and back? Exactly. So what's happening is, from what we're hearing from these migrants, is that it's very difficult on the U.S. side, or at least it has been over the past few days, to get kind of basic supplies, food, water, uh, charging uh, stations. There's no electricity for them to charge their phones. We spoke to one mother who actually came here to Mexico because she could get diapers. And what some people are doing is they come here to Mexico, they stay for a couple of hours, and then they go back to the U.S. encampment. Other people have come here to Mexico to stay and say the conditions were so bad on the U.S. side that they would rather go through immigration proceedings here in Mexico and apply for asylum here in Mexico mm. than go back to the U.S. So what we know from Mexican immigration officials is that there's roughly 600 people, uh, according to their latest estimates, on this side of the border. There's more than 2,000 on the U.S. side of the border uh, after a peak of nearly 15,000 or so uh, a few days ago. So the numbers have gone down as both countries process these migrants, either by deporting them or or letting them into the country with uh, various sorts of of asylum claims. Matt, you posted a video of a man who got pulled downstream, didn't seem like he was a very able swimmer. And tell me about that and, and how easy or hard it is to, to cross over the water. Yeah, so at this point of the Rio Grande, water levels can, can you know, go up quite quickly because further upstream there are a series of dams that do have regularly scheduled water releases. But, of course, you know, these are migrants who just arrived here. They're not familiar with the water tables of the Rio Grande. And what happened when we saw that man as he went across and there was a part of the river that was clearly deep, the current had increased substantially and he got swept downstream. Um, And it was a kind of a hold your breath moment for those of us watching because three or four migrants dove in after him. Uh, But ultimately it was the U S border patrol that was also watching that had to throw a lifeline to him and they, and they threw him a rope and they were able to pull him ashore. And that is a very different image from what we've seen earlier uh, with those widely circulated images from, from a few days ago where U S border patrol agents were on horseback corralling migrants who were trying to cross but it just gives you a sense of this is not a black and white situation. This is a very difficult situation for all involved, including law enforcement agencies on both sides. Uh, and I think, you know, when it comes to people crossing back and forth, no one is doing this because they want to, because it's fun. And uh, we should add, there are a lot of families here. I have seen countless children put on their parents' mm-hmm. shoulders as they walk across. As one, uh, one father told me, he came across to get baby wipes. Uh, because he said he was having a hard time keeping his kids clean on the U.S. side. Matt, you're talking to some of these families, some of whom have come all the way up from Brazil to make this trek to get to the border. What did they tell you about why they're doing this? The vast majority of Haitians have not left Haiti recently to come here, despite what your your, your listeners would have heard recently in the news about the earthquake there and the presidential assassination a few months ago. The people that will leave Haiti because of those events, and make no mistake, they will, they haven't had time to arrive here yet. The people that are here, many cases left Haiti three, four, five years ago after other events due to poverty, violence, natural disasters. And it's really within the last year or two 
uh, during this pandemic when closures, economic hardship really have affected South America, that these people have decided to make the very difficult journey up here. And I, you know, I, I hesitate to say that, you know, there's one reason why everyone left because each, each migrant has an individual story, of course. Mm. But I think if you were to kind of paint with a, a broader brush, people are just looking for economic opportunity. I mean, that, that's the, the overarching theme of all of this is people say we're just looking to create a better life for ourselves in a way that we can't in Chile or Ecuador or Brazil or even here in Mexico. And, and they're willing to go put these, their families through these horrific conditions uh, in, order, in order to do so, only to be met here in the U.S. in many cases with being flown back to a country that many of them haven't been in years. And in the case mm. of small children... These kids have never even been to Haiti, and yet they're going to get flown back there. So a, a very difficult situation for these migrants, I think. That's Matt Rivers, CNN correspondent today, reporting from the Mexican side of the border. Matt, thanks for the time. Thanks so much for having me. When Hurricane Ida struck Louisiana, it was a powerful storm. But was it really necessary that so many people would lose power for so long? Millions of people were in the dark for a week and 11 died. A joint investigation from NPR News and ProPublica finds the city of New Orleans pushed the local utility for decades to prepare for disasters like this, and Energy New Orleans resisted. NPR's Tegan Wendland reports. On a sweltering afternoon a week after Hurricane Ida, Albert Lewis and Tammy Lubbock sit on a neighbor's stoop in New Orleans' 7th Ward. No power, no gas, no car, nothing. Everywhere I go, I got to walk and I'll never make it. So high. Daytime and nighttime. That's not just an inconvenience, it's dangerous. Lewis can't get his medications. He's sweating so much his colostomy bag needs to be changed often, but he can't get new ones because none of the pharmacies have power. And Lovick can't check her heart monitor. She passed out in the backyard from the heat. While I was sitting outside in my backyard trying to get cool, and I just fell out. I don't, all I remember is him coming and helping me up off the ground. Her face is all scraped up. They would have evacuated, but like many, they just couldn't afford to. So they hunkered down in their apartment and hoped for the best. It wasn't Ida's wind or rain that proved most deadly. It was being left for days and days without power. No air conditioning, refrigeration, or cell service. Local advocates, regulators, and residents say it didn't have to come to this. Many have been fighting for years to get the local power company, Entergy New Orleans, to better prepare for a storm just like Ida. It did not surprise me, but it is appalling and it, and it did infuriate me. Monique Hardin is a lawyer who works at the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice. As storms get more intense, temperatures get more extreme, and sea level rises, she says New Orleans' energy grid isn't ready. We're surrounded by an entire system that the company Entergy has neglected over the years and can't stand up to the challenges of climate change. The city council alleged the company slashed spending on equipment upgrades and diverted funds earmarked for basic repairs. Advocates like Hardin have been pushing for years for Entergy New Orleans to better prepare for climate change. Solar and wind power, microgrids that provide backup during emergencies, and burying power lines so the poles don't get knocked over in every storm. Ideas backed by experts. Hardin says the company had the perfect opportunity after Hurricane Katrina. But ProPublica and NPR found that Entergy fought those proposals. They're not governed. They're, you know, they're almost rogue actors. Former New Orleans Inspector General Ed Quattrovo issued a report on the company in 2015. 
Oversight of the for-profit monopoly is unusual. It doesn't answer to state utility officials. Instead, it answers to city council members who handle everything from police budgets to trash pickup, as well as power bills. And Quattrovo found in the report that the city council was ill-equipped to regulate Entergy New Orleans. These companies have, you know, an army of economists and accountants, and you can't match them. The city council spends millions on outside experts just to regulate Entergy New Orleans. And the council has tried to push back on the company by levying fines, but the company sued. The city and state are trying to cut greenhouse gas emissions, but Entergy has fought those efforts, implying it might sue again. It keeps building natural gas power plants, and its PR firm even hired paid actors to rally support at public meetings. Council President Helena Moreno chairs the Utilities Committee. There's an expectation that regulators are supposed to do whatever the company wants. And I think that that has been the expectation of the company for a while. Moreno is pushing the council to launch an investigation into Entergy New Orleans to find out what went wrong when Ida hit why all eight of its transmission lines failed, and whether the company's doing enough to prevent future catastrophes. Lawyers have now filed a class-action lawsuit against the company, calling recent blackouts deadly and avoidable. The company declined to comment. I don't think a carrot is necessarily working for this corporation. I think, unfortunately, you know, as a regulator, we do have to use stick uh, in this regard. New Orleanians pay a bigger chunk of their income for electricity than people in other parts of the country, in a city where about twice as many people live in poverty than the national average. Entergy did not agree to an interview. It sent us a statement saying it spent more than $6 billion improving the Louisiana grid and is trying to get federal money to update its system even more. During a recent press call, Entergy CEO Philip May deflected questions about how the company could have prepared for storms like Ida. Mother Nature is the undisputed world champion. And we can engineer some of the most robust structures and Mother Nature will simply take those out in storms like this. But after reviewing articles and public records compiled by NPR and ProPublica, five utilities experts agreed. The company could have gone further to avoid a disaster like this by, for example, investing more in routine maintenance. I don't think that New Orleans residents should accept a company not acting in their best interest. Destiny Nock is a professor of engineering and public policy at Carnegie Mellon. She says Hurricane Ida represents another missed opportunity. Entergy should have an obligation to make sure that its customers have reliable power throughout the year, throughout disasters. The company has deployed thousands of linemen who are busy repairing the grid, building it back the way it was. Ultimately, the risk is that next time, people like Lewis and Lovick will once again be left in the dark. Tegan Wensland, NPR News, New Orleans. Racist behavior exists in our town, in our state, and in our world. The superintendent at Newburgh Public School says he's horrified and ashamed after another racist incident within the district. A staff member is now on leave after wearing a blackface to school. Good evening. Thanks for joining us, everybody. I'm Steve Dunn. And I'm Lincoln Graves in for Deb Knapp. This happened Friday. The employee was removed from campus and the incident is now under investigation. K2's Megan Allison joins us live now at the district office. Megan, is there any potential this staff member could come back to campus? 
Yeah, Lincoln, I asked the district that very question, and they tell me that is one possible outcome of the administrative leave. But there are still many unknowns at this time. Staff here have still not yet confirmed the role of the employee or where they were working when this happened. The district was also unable to confirm if this is a paid or unpaid leave, as well as the motivation behind the incident. What they could share is they are not aware of any students witnessing this incident, and they are connecting students with counselors in response. In the wake of this event, is the district taking any action to send the message that this is unacceptable? Um, we're doing this today. We're making sure to make clear that this action is unacceptable. We are following all our procedures and investigating all the things that were involved with these incidences. This comes amid at least two other race-related controversies, one being a student's involvement in a Snapchat group titled Slave Trade, where they submitted photos of other students, which the superintendent also condemned this afternoon, and the other, the ongoing battle over the right to display political signs in school, including Black Lives Matter and pride flags. The incidents in Newburgh even caused the State Board of Education to pass a resolution reminding all districts they should create safe spaces for students. I also spoke with parents in the community who are now voicing concerns around placing students in these kinds of environments. We'll have more on their response coming up tonight at 6. Live in Newburgh, Megan Allison, K2 News. See you at 6 o'clock, Megan. Thank you. This incident sure to be discussed at a special board meeting set to happen later on this week. And according to the district website, they'll take public comment on a number of recent issues, including mask and teacher vaccine mandates and that controversial ban on pride and Black Lives Matter flags. The meeting will be held via Zoom Wednesday at 7 o'clock. I was the first, one of the first. My first day was state trooper coming, putting me in the back seat of the car, and meeting the other black kids with six of us. And seeing all of those parents and also KKK members uh, having signs and throwing cans at us, spitting at us. We lived in the threat of death every day, every day. So I was just lost in this vacuum uh, between integration and segregation and, and racism. That was my childhood. I was angry for years. Angry. Very angry. Six, two schools are investigating a fight during a football game which may have been involving some racial slurs. That brawl broke out on a field Friday night. But as WBZ's Paul Burton tells us, some players claim people were yelling the slurs throughout the game. A brawl breaks out at the end of a football game at Georgetown High School. Now school officials in Georgetown are looking into accusations that racial slurs were used during the Friday night football game versus Roxbury Prep High School. On Monday, Roxbury Prep dean of students and head football coach says he was appalled at the behavior of the fans and players of Georgetown. Uh, multiple players came back to me stating that they were being called the N-word and had racial epithets thrown at them. What I'm hearing happened is that there were, throughout the game, times where there were allegations of the use of the N-word. The game was cut short because of the fight. Georgetown won the game 48-8. to Coach McGinnis says he spoke with referees about the racial comments during the game. He also says the team's bench was too close to the opposing fans. We're actually intermingled with our bench area. That's how close they were. There was no separation between fans, students, and players. So our students and staff did hear that from the student fan section um, and also from players on the field. The referees didn't hear anything, but 
Again, you know, we're just going to keep our minds open until we know all of the facts. At one point during the fight, one of the coaches at Roxbury Prep slammed one of Georgetown players to the ground. Our coaches were focused on separating the teams uh, and player safety. Uh, it was not done maliciously. It was pulling players apart from each other. School officials are still investigating the incident. They're asking for parents and students who may have more cell phone video, both of the fight and in the stands, to please share that video with administrators so they have a better understanding of what actually took place. And if it did happen on the field, I think the players on both sides need to own up to it and say, yeah, you know what, there were some things that. So I think whatever way this works out, there'll be an educational outcome. In Georgetown, I'm Paul Burton, WBZ News. Uh, I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. Doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. Damn you, Obama. Because it's not a joke, it's not funny, and it's not cool. Beyond repulsive, that's how some families in the Park Hill School District describe a petition calling for the return of slavery. Some students circulated the petition, and tonight the district is responding. I'm John Holt. And I'm Christelle Bell. Students are also weighing in, saying all this has created an uncomfortable vibe in the halls of South Park Hill, South, Park Hill South, excuse me. Fox 4's Jacob Kittlestad joins us now live from school district headquarters. And Jake, what have you learned about this petition? Well, students with direct knowledge of the situation tell me that this petition was started and shared online. Again, that petition to return slavery. Soon there were leaked screenshots of that petition saying things like, I hate blacks and I love slavery. Other students tell me they don't think the situation was taken very seriously from the outset. Park Hill South senior Bree Holmes taps away at her government homework. I thought it was fake. I thought it was like some sick joke and a rumor. Distracted by growing stories about a petition at her school calling for a return of slavery. And my teacher had said that she was also upset by it, but the kids were like joking about it and not taking it seriously. Her feelings? amplifying awareness of her own racial identity. Well, my mom is Caucasian and my dad is African-American. So, and then there's me. You can't see it. I look just a little tan, but I still look Caucasian. I've heard the N-word quite a bit, and I've had to say that's not okay. With this particular situation, and it's sad to say, I'm not surprised that it happened at my school. There has been some funky things going on. District administration and Park Hill South's principals say that they are troubled by the petition and want that expressed to the public. We we listened to those that brought it forward uh, to make sure that we had the details and all that and then our investigation started right away. They are experiencing some of the same um, um, confusing um, emotions and, and, and feelings and reactions as the adults are. Um, we are all in that place as human beings. I think we've got a lot of hurt students, uh, a lot of students that are hurt and mad and frustrated. Uh, they're confused why this is happening in their community. 
Um, I, I do not sense that they're taking it lightly whatsoever. And Bree says she's been reflecting about when she learned about slavery as a younger student in the district. And I remember we were talking about what they did to the slaves um, when they were in slavery, and I remember crying in class. And my teacher asked if I was okay, and I was like, if I was back then, that could have happened to me. Cannot talk about punishments or disciplines given to students, but did provide a portion of their handbook outlining that, yes, racially centered incidents of this type do carry punishments. And right now, that's all that they can say, John and Christelle. The man, race, race, class, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood. After a series of prosecutors recused themselves in the murder trial of Ahmaud Arbery, former Cobb DA Joyette Holmes was appointed to try the case. Arbery, who was black, was chased and fatally shot in February of 2020 by three white men while jogging through a Brunswick neighborhood. A viral video of Arbery's death sparked nationwide outrage. It also forced prosecutors to act months after the killing. Holmes lost her seat last November to Flynn Brody, who will now prosecute the case. Well, this afternoon, I spoke with Joyette Holmes about the Ahmad Arbery trial, and she starts by telling me about how emotion is playing out in the prosecution. In the beginning of the case, and, you know, the beginning was certainly back in February of 2020 when Ahmad was murdered, but I'm referring more to May when everybody knew what happened based on the release of the video. Uh, as district attorney at that time, my commitment to making sure that justice was had in that case was making sure that we were able to make decisions on prosecution based on the investigation as we knew it, the facts and how they applied to the law that we ultimately um, asked the grand jury to charge. Yes, the public sentiment uh, was important and valued in terms of getting the case to where it was. Uh, we know that there were months that passed without knowing anything, even though there was public outcry to find out what that was. But we couldn't make decisions on charging as prosecutors strictly based on that emotion. What was unique early on in this case? My appointment was the fourth appointment of a prosecutor in a case. I think that was a pretty unique scenario and certainly required um, a lot of trust building because any trust that there may have been at the beginning of the process was lost over the first couple of months. You know, certainly the year that it was, I think led to more attention, which was a good thing. I always talk about the pandemic happened and caused us to all stand still, listen and see what was going on out in our communities. Unfortunately, Ahmaud Aubrey is no longer here with us, but it certainly led to um, more people listening and paying attention to things that were wrong in our society. I want to ask you, can the suspects, Travis McMichael, Gregory McMichael, and William Bryan, get a fair trial in Georgia, in your opinion? So I have great confidence in our judicial system and even more with respect to this case, just because I know the hard work that the Cobb DA's office has put into it from being appointed 
and have faith that the team that continues to work on the case is going to do the right thing, which will ultimately lead um, to justice being had in this case, which I would believe would be a result of guilty for all three defendants. Former Glenn County District Attorney Jackie Johnson, who was the first prosecutor to recuse herself from the Arbery case, is indicted now on charges related to the delay in arresting the main suspects, one of whom uh, previously had worked as an investigator for that office. Do you agree with the indictment against Jackie Johnson? So our office, when I was in the Cobb DA's office, did not have anything to do with the investigation of Jackie Johnson or the ultimate indictment that will lead to that prosecution. So I don't, I don't know that it's appropriate for me to comment on that. Can you tell me, do you think it sets a troubling precedent to have a district attorney indicted for not pursuing charges? Well, I mean, none of us who take who have taken the oath to serve, whether it's as a district attorney or some other public official, are above what is expected and required of us in those positions. So, you know, in terms of a bad precedent, if it were to to ultimately come out that she shouldn't have been charged, well, you know, that's what's going to be figured out through the course of the prosecution. Um, as prosecutors, prosecutors have to be ministers of justice. And that's a heavy charge, but a heavy charge that um, those of us who have served have sworn an oath to serve. Joyette Holmes is the former chief magistrate judge and district attorney for Cobb County and is now partner in a private law firm. Ms. Holmes, thank you so much for talking with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. So... You know, these events that keep coming up, instead of just reacting, dealing with them one at a time and being shocked each time we have another event that surfaces that we that is brought to our attention, we need to function from the position of an analysis that clarifies we are in a total system structure of racism, white supremacy, and that is why we are seeing the kinds of behaviors from individuals, be it Donald Sterling or be it um, George Zimmerman or any of the other cases that come to our attention. There is a reason that these cases exist. And I want to also talk about, in this case, they talked about mental health, but also gun control. And we have to begin to understand, I say you can't understand the gun mania if you don't understand racism, white supremacy. The gun is the answer to conscious and or subconscious. The answer, the response to the quite collective feeling they can be genetically annihilated by black genetic material. And the gun is a great equalizer. I encourage everybody to get a copy of the ISIS papers and read. A violent act, taking one man's life and stirring up fear for others. You have released someone on a weekend who has taken the life of someone. So how can anyone who is black feel safe right now? 22-year-old Barry Washington Jr. was shot and killed Sunday morning after a fight in downtown Bend. The suspect, 
27-year-old Ian Cranston was charged with second-degree manslaughter. He was released from jail after posting bail. Ricardo Waits from Central Oregon Black Leaders Assembly believes this was a mistake. Our community has failed Barry Washington's family. It has failed every person of color, especially black person in this community. Ricardo's organization and Central Oregon Peacekeepers posted in solidarity with the victim with the hashtag Justice for Barry. Ben City Council released a statement on the tragedy, saying in part, Mr. Washington's death was totally preventable. We call on the community to come together and focus on how we can prevent these tragedies from happening in the city we all love. We call for justice and support for Mr. Washington's family as they grieve this tragic loss. Comments on the Central Oregon Daily Facebook page expressed outrage that the killer is still on the streets. Waits says he's made great efforts to alert the community about the lack of safety for people of color. For over 18 months, I have told city council, the mayor, the chief of police, anyone who would listen that the city is not safe for people of color. He says the incident proves that Bend is not what it claims to be. This is a tragedy. We are failing. Everything everyone has said is talk. Nothing's been done. And now a young man who left somewhere to be safe because Ben advertises itself as a safe place that's diverse has died here. Carly Olson, Central Oregon Daily News. You know, I always ask God to take me away from New Orleans. I want to live a different life. And I thought that was my blessing, not knowing this was going to really mess my head up. Oh, my God, this is beautiful. Kathy Phipps signed a lease on a house that means a lease on a new life. Oh, bless your soul. She's moving into a community that's embracing her with open arms. When we first met Kathy, she was a hurricane evacuee, surprised to find herself in Utah. Utah? I was really afraid there because I noticed I didn't see any black people. But I said, no, they probably come in. No, they'll come out when it's all over. Maybe they're thinking, they're thinking everybody's like me. They don't want to get involved with this action, but they'll come out. <laughs> when I noticed they wasn't coming out, I went to getting frightened living there by myself. When a lady told me it's 1% black in Utah, in Pleasant Grove, Utah, I said, why did people send me here? There I am, can't sleep, thinking somebody's going to come and just lynch us. <laughs> This week, KUER and the Mountain West News Bureau are looking at the history of sundown towns in the West. Those are places where people of color weren't allowed to live within city limits. KUER's Ivana Martinez took a look at Utah's history with racial discrimination. Utah doesn't appear to have had any laws on the books that said people of color couldn't live in town. But it seems clear African Americans weren't welcome in many places. Price was one of them. That's because of the 1925 lynching of Robert Marshall and its aftermath. Census data from the Times shows there were almost 200 black people living in Carbon County. Ten years after the lynching, there were only 39. Kimberly Mangun is an associate professor at the University of Utah. She studied Marshall's death. Mangun says it's hard to directly tie the two events together, but the data tells a story. Certainly the numbers are really evident with that drastic decline. People at the time said they did not feel safe. Black Utahns did not feel safe, um, particularly after the lynching. Years later, not much has changed. 
In the late 90s, Reverend France Davis needed an escort to go commemorate Marshall's death in Price. And when we got there, uh, they attached the policeman to me because they had so many threats of, um, against my life. Mangan says the mining town isn't the only place where discrimination occurred. It was felt all over the state. It may not have been outright racism, but it was exclusion through other means. So economic disenfranchisement, for example, where there were separate white and black businesses, um, housing, residential discrimination. In light of last year's protests against racial injustice, Mangan says much of this history is still present today. Ivana Martinez, KUER News. The lineup, see, the lineup, man, is a thing like I used to, in Peoria, Illinois, it's a small town, so I'd be in a lineup for entertainment on Saturday nights because there wasn't nothing to do. You know what I mean? Because ugly white women used to say they got raped by niggas. Hey, a nigger raped me. You know, and the guys be going, are you sure? <laughs> uh, they go round up some niggers, you know, like, oh, you were down last week, you know what to do, don't you? Well, come on down again, well, yeah, we got to have a lineup. <laughs> You know, it was a lot of fun unless you got picked. That was your ass. <laughs> mm. To Massachusetts now, where a man has spent nearly 50 years in prison, convicted of raping a woman, and it's a crime he's always insisted he did not commit. The accused man is black, the rape survivor white, and she says she's now no longer sure she identified the right man, citing race as part of the problem. As Jennifer McKim with member station GBH reports, a judge could decide tomorrow whether he goes free. Ann Kane has long tried to put her traumatic 1973 sexual assault behind her, focusing instead on career and family. But when Tyrone Clark's attorney reached out a few years ago to clear his name, Kane welcomed the call. I can see how I might have been wrong. Kane is now 71 years old and retired. She says at the time of the assault she trusted the system, but she's learned how African Americans in particular have too long been denied justice. NPR normally doesn't identify victims of sexual assault, but Kane wants to speak out because she's worried that Clark is a victim, too. It is a well-proven fact at this point that eyewitness identification is incredibly unreliable. Cross-racial identifications are considered even more problematic. And I had no experience in differentiating black faces. Clark was allowed to talk with a reporter recently in a windswept prison yard. Bald and bespectacled, he speaks with a stutter he's had since childhood, a detail never attributed to Kane's attacker. He was 19 when he was sentenced to life in prison. I never raped nobody in my life. That's not my, my, my uh, kind of person that I am. Clark grew up poor, struggled in school, and dropped out at 16. He says he was misidentified, convicted by an all-white jury at a time of heightened racial tension in Boston. There was no physical evidence connecting him to the crime. For decades, Clark tried without success to obtain new evidence to prove his innocence. He's grateful to Kane for speaking out. I feel sad concerning what happened to her back then, but, but, but I feel good that she came forward. You know, it took a lot of years, you know, to come forward, you know. Kane says she told a detective when she first saw Clark in court that he didn't look like her attacker. But he dismissed her concerns. In recent years, she sent letters to the parole board and the court detailing these doubts. Word of her worries reached prosecutors who took another look. Suffolk County District Attorney Rachel Rollins says she now supports Clark's request for a new trial. If a judge agrees, she'll drop the rape case. I will no longer stand behind this conviction. This still wouldn't mean Clark is completely exonerated. He was also convicted of robbery and kidnapping and completed those sentences. Rollins is now focused on the rape charge. 
and she says the state didn't preserve key evidence that would help Clark prove his innocence. I think the extraordinary piece that brought it to our attention was this victim. Nearly 2,900 people across the nation have been exonerated of their crimes since 1989, about 28% involving mistaken identification. That's according to the National Registry of Exonerations that finds black men are disproportionately misidentified in rape cases involving white women. There is no more incendiary issue in criminal justice in the United States than uh, claims of sexual assault by white women against black men. That's Sam Gross, founder of the registry. He says the country's racial history has much responsibility to bear for wrongful convictions, but it doesn't explain everything. The biggest cause is the great difficulty that white Americans have in correctly identifying black strangers. For Kane, reopening the case means she has to think about the real possibility that her attacker is still out there. Friends may learn about a part of her past she's tried to forget. But she says supporting Clark is the right thing to do. Things are messed up in this country, and somebody needs to start doing something about it. A judge is expected to consider Clark's motion for a new trial on Thursday. If it goes his way, he could walk out of court a free man. If not, he heads back to prison. For NPR News, this is Jennifer McKim in Boston. The way I saw it then and still see it now is that the biggest obstacle to progress in America is our conditioned susceptibility to the white man's program. Our minds have been colonized by images of black humiliation, marginality, subservience, impotence, and criminality that are ubiquitous in mainstream American sentiment. These are the supposed self-images seen when African-Americans look into the sociocultural mirror of the cinema. We've been violated, confused, and drained by this colonization. And from this brutal, calculated genocide, the most vicious racism has grown. And it's with this starting point in mind and the intention to reverse the process that I went into cinema in the first fucking place. The worlds of cinema, theater, and American civil rights movements in general have been mourning the death and celebrating the life of Melvin Van Peebles. He died this week at the age of 89. Peebles paved the way for many of today's forays and projects that try to explore more diverse storytelling and casting in American culture. Many decades before the mainstream commercial success of films like, say, Black Panther or Selma, you can go all the way back to 1971, when Peebles was squaring off against and challenging a very directly racist Hollywood and corporate structure in America. And he had his own ideas about how to provide a different portrayal of a strong black protagonist taking on racist police. He wrote, directed, scored, edited, and starred in the film Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. You got to burn the Sweetback! They made your brother! They made your sister! But he won't bleed me! Like many other barrier-breaking projects, that film was initially greeted by the industry with skepticism, with predictions of demise or there would be no commercial interest. I mention that because it's an important context, context, a story that sometimes repeats. But in actuality, it became a box office hit, which stunned many in Hollywood. 
It also changed what was possible in movies and perhaps the broader culture. Melvin would go on to a prolific career in film, theater, and literature. His New York Times obituary this week notes that he was a fertile creative force, the godfather of modern black cinema, and a trailblazer in American independent movies. This is a story that we would report and reflect on regardless, but tonight we are honored to reflect on that legacy with his son, Mario Van Peebles, someone you probably also know for his many film roles, launching his directing career with the iconic film New Jack City, which he also starred in. I remember watching that as a kid. He made many appearances in movies and TV with his father. And you see them there. We should note he's also providing new commentary on a newly issued Criterion collection of his father's first four films that's actually out next week. Mario Van Peebles, first time on The Beat. Thank you for being here. I am very sorry uh, for your loss and appreciate you being willing to reflect on your father tonight. Brother Ari, thanks for having me on. I was lucky enough to be there with my dad when he passed. Um, I was sleeping in the bed right next to him. We knew he was getting old. Um, and he made it look graceful and classy, and he went in his sleep with his family nearby. Man was 89 years old. May we be so lucky. So I think the tragedy would have been if he didn't do what he came to do, but Melvin Van Peebles lived a full life, and, and I got to see him with a beautiful exit. So um, we think of, you know, birth is a miracle and death is a tragedy, but uh, I think it's just flip sides of the same mortality coin. Hmm. I appreciate you saying that, and everyone at home can can reflect on on our own losses and, and times and family. Uh, the fact that you're able to share that that you felt this went uh, away befitting your father is is good to hear. Uh, as mentioned, your family life and your work life intertwined in ways that many people enjoyed. Let's play a little bit of you and your dad together. She says she likes us both. She should pick. <laughs> I will pick. Good. <laughs> I choose you, Warner. <laughs> so it's like that, huh? Frankly, I think she made a good choice. Yeah. What did you Sorry. learn working uh, with him? Oh, brother, he had a wicked sense of humor, man. And the, the cool thing about him, he was really a kind man. He was a ferocious cat because he was a black man trying to get business done way back in the day. And I was a kid growing up on the set with him when he said, son, some fathers can teach you to play basketball. I'm going to try to teach you how to own the team. And that meant, you know, knowing that mm. good allies came in. Uh, don't leave love on the table. He's got he's got people he's helped from all over. And uh, I saw dad. He, dad understood something that, you know, when you're a person of color, right, and you grow up in America and everyone on the money is white and male and the Easter Bunny and Jesus are white and is depicted as white. And um, you, you start to wonder if you can really achieve things until Melvin Van Peoples put black power on the screen. So in mm. 1970, when... He puts black power for the first. We didn't even have facial hair back then, bro. Now suddenly you got afros and 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 bell bottoms, and then you get Pam Greer and all those other flicks that came later. We suddenly were showing that it was fun to be us, and that psychological mm. change is a tonic to people who have been underrepresented. 
And so kids like me who grew up watching my dad's movies, watching the movies Gordon Parks, watching Ozzie Davis decided we want to do that too. Kids like Spike Lee, kids like Singleton, kids like, you know, uh, you know, um, some of the sisters that are coming up now, and even our third generation. Now, come here, ugly boy. I got Melvin's grandson here who's now getting more auditions and making more money than me. It's crazy. <laughs> well, look at his shirt. See see the shirt? I'm a sweet bat. Oh, say hi, boy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we have a laugh and we play a lot in our family. Me and my son hang together. Me and my dad hang together. And so what's cool is you you develop a work language, but you also have a father-son home homey language, and that's beautiful. And um, he lived a big life, man. He did his thing. And, you know, he did Broadway. He he had a beautiful play called Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death and another one called Don't Play as Cheap, and we're going to bring Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death back to Broadway, and Kenny Leon is going to direct that. And then, as you pointed out, the Criterion folks are bringing out his movies. And when Sweetback became the top grossing independent hit of 1971, the guy who did the artwork on the cover for the Black Panther paper was Emery Douglas. And he does the cover of the five box set of my dad's mm. movies. So 50 years later, Emery Douglas is doing the cover and it's all things Melvin, man. So 50 years since Sweetback, 30 years since New Jack, put it all in his shirt for dad. You know, this is all our movies and says black images matter because the first thing to set in your mind free is seeing the imagery that tells you you can do it. Right. Right. I love that. Well, first of all, Mario, we got to We got to get you booking for the beat because, you know, we, we, we invite one person on. We Ooh. get the second for a bonus. Shout out to, to Mandela. But, you know, I got to say on a human level, and this is why we look to art and we look beyond just the news stories. I, I spoke to you by phone. I know you're grieving. I know your son is grieving. But through your grief. You're sharing us the future and vitality and the joy and the joy that your father bring, obviously, to you personally and to so many others as a visionary. And that's such a such a fitting thought to, to, to share with us. So I appreciate that. Uh, thanks to both of you for coming on. Um, and, you know, I was a little kid, Mario, when I was saying to my friends, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, I, yes, am. I am. So you and your dad and now your son, three generations. Shout out to you guys. Yeah. Thank you, brother. Thank you, man. All right. All right. Thanks for having us on, man. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And we will mention again the Criterion Collection here. You see on your screen of those first four films that actually comes out next week. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, September 25, 2021. So I have been told. This is our weekly compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, the number to dial 720-716-7300. The code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate <clears throat> number again seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to to participate 
few things before we get to some of the folks who dialed in. Uh, number one, we didn't have uh, an audio segment. However, one of our listeners alerted me at the top of the week. Uh, one of our former guests, I think world renowned uh, author, philosopher, victim of white supremacy, author, uh, Professor Charles W. Mills, a uh, black male victim of white supremacy. Uh, he wrote uh, The Racial Contract. I think that's the book that he's uh, most known for all over the world. Uh, and then he wrote lots of other books and articles as well. I uh, think uh, Blackness Visible. I think that's or it might be Visible Blackness. I might have transposed it, but either or. Uh, Dr. Curry recommended that one. I have that one. Uh, but he's written lots of stuff. You can take this uh, maybe moment to check out his uh, bio and see all his many, many works that pretty much all deal with white supremacy, racism. And he was a guest on the cows way back in 2009, December 2009, to be specific. Uh, Eleven years. We've been here for a second. Anywho. Um but he did pass away this week, uh, Monday, I believe, at the age of 70, which <clears throat> I say that's a disgrace. I think <clears throat> I think if there was no system of white supremacy, racism, 70, I mean, you're just getting started. With all of the, the research and <clears throat> knowledge that he collected uh, over the years, like he should have been here uh, for quite a bit more time uh, trying to help solve this problem but he did pass away this week at the age of 70 we did hear the audio segment at the end uh, about Melvin Van Peebles uh, who also passed away this week at the age of 89 that's you know I guess a little bit better still I mean hey Methuselah like people who know the Bible like we should be here a really long time but Melvin Van Peebles uh, did a lot with the time that he did have uh, made a number of films uh, they only mentioned I believe uh, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song uh, he also did Classified X uh, which is a documentary film you heard a snippet from it where he was talking about he narrates the documentary uh, where he talks about why he got into making films in the first place and dropped the F-bomb uh, but Classified X, it's available online. <clears throat> it's all about white supremacy, racism in entertainment all through the year. Birth of a Nation is mentioned uh, within there. Uh, but Mr. Peebles also did uh, Watermelon Man. Uh, if you want to do you know, some counter-racist research or what have you, Watermelon Man. Uh, it is about Wellsing Moment. It is about a white man who turns black. Uh, because of excessive sun tanning, he wakes up and is a black person and then has to adjust. And he's like, this is, excuse me, this is like a flagrant racist. He's made lots of racist jokes and all this the whole time. And so now he's a black person and seeing what happens to him. It is, uh, <laughs> yeah, you have to check it out. You have to check it out. That is, uh, that is the work that he did before Sweetback, which got him a lot of attention. All I can say is, wow, sometimes, regardless of how much turbulence and terrorism there is and there is plenty of it uh, this year and every year in the system uh, sometimes just those little signals and things will kind of at least let me know we might be headed in the correct direction or at least this is what I individually am supposed to be doing I had been discussing we're almost done with Woody Allen's book in the book club it was Woody Allen or Shaft which is written by a white man 
what started this whole big franchise and Gordon Parks doing the film and Isaac Hayes with the soundtrack would start Richard Roundtree in the leather jacket written by a white man I said those were the two we should read uh, because it and oh, the connect now it will connect so nice because there's so much black male homoeroticism in Woody Allen's work he even uh, can't get off into the book club right now but there's so much of that in Woody Allen's autobiography to then read Shaft oh my god it's right there Woody Shaft Woody which is not his real name Mo in Dallas one of the best points of the whole book study that is not his real name did he just name himself after an erection Dr. Francis Cress Welsing and then Shaft which is the creation of the white mind which is supposed to be a homoerotic black male oh that's exactly how they were supposed to be read together anyway we were just talking about and it's the 50 year anniversary of Shaft there was lots of you know input as to why are we reading Shaft now we're definitely reading it now uh, for them to mention that with Melvin Van Peebles which has been happening for about 50 years now Sweetback came out first and then hey we can make these Negro flicks Shaft Superfly and all the rest they went on for 70 years but to say any of that classifies as black power like wow uh, we're reading shafts all I can say <laughs> like uh, maybe we'd have to get a good definition for what you mean when you say power but whew, those images are nothing close to replacing white supremacy with justice and we will start shaft sometime soon reading is more important than watching television but again Professor Charles W. Mills Melvin Van Peebles Classified X is great if you want to check out a documentary my list here let's see my list was extensive there's so many things that happened uh, I complained and groused about not being able to be at the beach for the book club this past Thursday when we were reading Woody Allen and the black male homoeroticism, uh, especially so because in the Pacific Northwest, it is about to be really, really dark and cloudy. When I say dark, meaning absence of sunlight, dark, cloudy, rainy on a regular basis, no more wonderful days to lounge out at the beach in fact by the time we hit December late November uh, if it days that are overcast the street lights tend to come on at 2.30 p.m. 3 p.m. so you have to really take advantage of all the sun that you can while it's here I didn't get to go to the beach on Thursday compensated I went Friday it was one the weather was amazing it was almost 80 degrees Ugh. Who can complain for official autumn weather in Seattle? Absolutely spectacular. I felt like a summer day. So I'm lounging. And in fact, it was so warm, it stayed warm even once the sun went down. Lounging out at the beach. Lovely. They have fire pits at Alki Beach, which I've long said is the lamest beach in Seattle for a myriad of reasons. One of them being that that is the only beach I've been at Seattle 
where enforcement officers regularly ride literally on the beach in their SUVs and other vehicles like that, at least for me, immediately disqualify or immediately qualifies you for lamest beach in said area. That said, when I was there yesterday, no enforcement officers. Hmm. They had also uh, a drought enforcement because we've had uh, no rain and all that. That changed the last week. Uh, so there's no more ban on fires. Lots of people had fires. I go up to one of the fire pits, still lit, just hanging out for a little bit, thinking I'll probably leave soon. Lots of work, have to prep for the compensatory call in. A whole group of black people arrive. We hang out at the fire pit. This is the only beach, Al Qaeda Beach, the only beach where that could happen, where you could be hanging out and an entire group of friendly black people would come up and say, oh, can we hang out at the fire pit? And even discussed racism a little bit like absolutely amazing. Um, I don't think that could happen at any of the other beaches here because that's the only beach that I've said you can reliably see black people. I see black people, large groups of them, small groups of them, birthday parties like all the time. It's like, I don't know if they had a meeting or someplace, but it's like the black people. That is the beach that black people go to in Seattle, Alki Beach. Uh, let's see. So many things where to even begin. Uh, there was a miss. Okay. The report that they gave the case in Bend, Oregon, right? Literally down the road from Gus T. Barry Washington Jr., black male, 27 years old, black male privilege. So he is killed by this white terrorist. Depending on which report you got, the one that we heard, black male, he was talking about how they failed and it's unsafe. That word again, unsafe. They, this white killer kills Barry Washington Jr. and he's out on bond. I'm so surprised. Uh, but depending on which news segment that you read, in some reports, they give a little bit more detail about what led up to this killing of a black male. Apparently, Barry Washington Jr., he went into some bar or place with alcohol. Uh, allegedly, he went up to a white woman, said something. Apparently, she said, no, I'm here with, you know, whomever. That was that. No fisticuffs. She didn't accuse him of raping her or anything. That was that. He left. Apparently, the white fellow who killed him was, I guess, in association with that white woman, might have been her sexual partner. I don't know, but all of that to say, uh, white people are very, very dangerous. Uh, and I would really keep that in mind now when you go out and about in public uh, because people have been killed over parking spots, masks. You said something to my woman, which is, you know, long running throughout history. Like, man, we had about 15 segments on that. Uh, I would really be mindful uh, going out in public of your conduct. Uh, it is just really dangerous times. Uh, and. I mean, even if he did go in, oh, hey, are you single? Whatever. She says, you know, I'm with somebody and he leaves. And for that to end up with you being killed at 27. White terrorism. Be extremely cautious. Let's see. 
same thing. Now, the case in New York City, uh, the group of black females who went to the restaurant, uh, it was reported that this was about proof of vaccination. They allegedly got in, uh, I guess, some other members of their group. Uh, they didn't have to show proof of vaccination or what have you. They said this conflict uh, erupts from there. They were on vacation from Texas. That's one component of the report. I can only submit this is not a good time for vacations. It is like extremely dangerous for a variety of reasons. Um, the Rona situation. I mean, now they had to present vaccine proof of vaccination to even enter. All of that is even, you know, do you really want to think? Do you really want to even have to process that before you hop on a plane and have to think about what that experience is going to be like? Uh, am I going to be uh, recruited to duct tape somebody to a seat who is misbehaving on a plane? Then once I get to my destination, am I going to have to have my proof of vaccination ready and all this? Am I going to have to do testing? Is there going to be a problem with the verifi verifying my vaccination? Like it's so much to think about. This, in my view, it is just not a good time uh, for a vacation. Uh, it just seems like there is a very high potential for that sort of thing to happen, meaning some sort of extraordinary conflict. Uh, there was a black family that went on vacation out of the country. Now, that's, you know, talk about chaos out of the country. Who knows what their protocol is going to be for entering? Do you have to quarantine? How many times do you have to test vaccine? All of that. Someone tested positive. So now everybody can't leave to return to their residence at the same time is so much chaos. I would really I said no flying. I've said that for some time. No flying. This is not a time for vacations, trips, leaving the country. I wouldn't care if it's discounted. Wouldn't care if it's free, really. It is not safe. You can do all that a little bit later uh, when things are a little less turbulent. Let's see. The <clears throat> segment Park Hill South. Uh, now, this is the one where the children were circulating the petition um, to reinstate slavery. Now, this would be another one I played, I think, President Obama about, you know, all of the dynamic changes in the younger generations. Mm. Uh, but this would be another one. White people are not ignorant about racism, white supremacy, even white children, if they are putting around a petition. Now, in that segment, I should have put the cowbell in there as well. Uh, they spoke with a victim. She said she had a white parent and a non-white parent. Interestingly, she said she thinks that she is accepted as a Caucasian with a nice tan. I would be very interested in talking to some of her classmates to see if they think that she is white especially after this like or we could even go strangers and just ask like let's go ask uh i think uh the wheat money remember that one uh white woman she was on the program and she said crystal tyler white woman uh, race soldier uh, and she said that her daughter she had a child with a black male crack addict in her words uh, she said that she gets her summer color. She's probably losing it about this time of year because I think they're somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, too. But she says she gets her summer color. 
and then she loses it and it's a bit more pale in the wintertime when there's less sun. I'd be interested if the victim that they spoke to at Park Hill South, if her classmates, do they think she's white with a nice tan? White person with a little summer color? Or do they think, no, this is just a pale nigra? Very interesting. Uh, Let's see. Anything else I'll make sure I get in before we get to the listeners. Uh, The segment where they had uh, Anne Kane. This is the white woman who wrongly thinks that she wrongly identified Tyrone Clark, black male, as the rapist. Uh, And he's been steadfast in saying that he's innocent. He doesn't do this sort of thing. Um, she said things are messed up. That is not what things are. We are in a system of white supremacy. Like she could be way more specific, especially if she is a white woman, older white woman. And she said, oh, yeah, all white jury convicts this black male with a speech impediment. And now I know the information about uh, eyewitnesses. Uh, and them saying that they got an identification, they can pick out the fellow who did this. Oh, especially cross racial identifications, meaning when someone classified as white is saying, oh, yeah, I was a witness. And the criminal was this non-white person. There's lots of, like decades of research saying that, oh, yeah, white people are really bad at identifying these folks. Black people, that would be, especially in a, some sort of criminal setting. Oh, lots of that. We did a whole uh, we had Timothy Cole. He was killed. I think he was the first person uh, died in prison. He was, I think, incarcerated for like 11 years in Texas. They put a statue up to him posthumously, they call it. And then I think they exonerated him posthumously get to use that word again after he was that I think he has the distinction of being like the first person ever in the state of Texas to be uh, posthumously pardoned uh, for a crime. If that means anything. You can be the judge of that. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> oh, and they said, they said that Tyrone Clark, uh, the victim, in my opinion, in this case, can you imagine being in greater confinement for decades and being branded a rapist of a white woman? And how he would be treated, how he's been treated for all those decades. <sighs> so they said Tyrone Clark, if uh, Miss Kane, she's going to, you know, be of some assistance in all this and see if we can get him out of greater confinement. They said, man, if things work out in his favor, he could walk out a free man. That is not going to happen regardless Things could go better than he could ever have imagined. He will not walk out a free man. Certainly not free of the system of white supremacy, and he will still be a male. That is what we are trying to change. Let's see. Number again is 720-716-7300. The code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate we are listener supported counter racist radio invest if the cows has been constructive uh, you can hit my blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot 
dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com when you hit the blog paypal button is in the top right corner uh, you can also look right beneath the paypal button should be direct links for paypal cash app venmo cash app uh, the address is cash dot app forward slash dollar sign the cows uh, enormous gratitude to all the investors who have kept the cows on the air 12 plus years we get to february it'll be 13 uh, hopefully more often than not we have provided accurate information about what white supremacy racism is things non-white people can and should be doing to solve this problem immediately let's see anything else need to make sure get in before get to the callers one more I'll share later let me see actually had two separate lists oh yes the very first segment they talked about the reports about about uh, the I think it was 16 different states where there's been a substantial increase in obesity so that's not just weight gain obesity is like hey you could die from having excessive weight excessive body mass Um, they talked about the racism component of course yeah yeah well they didn't do it enough justice but I mean white people terrorizing black people in that manner as well and making sure they're not whole foods uh, dispersed everywhere and sprouts and Berkeley Bowl so that black people have easy access to high quality organic untainted foods vegetables and fruits and legumes and all that but they talked about a pill right because if we're going to have all these people that we've made will be obesogenic environment from earlier this year one of our words for the year Uh, but they said that there, there could be some sort of pill that could be helpful in reducing and managing all of this weight and could be a real boon for health but that a lot of the insurers don't cover this uh, you know, I am not trying to jump on the anti-vaxxer or any of that. I just think in general, if we're talking about eating correctly, you shouldn't need a pill. Uh, that racist man, racist woman, racist child, always trying to stick some pill, uh, medication uh, in your mouth. Got to get you taking this for the rest of your life. You know, can't just be for a couple days or whatever. Like for the next 50 years, you got to take this. Make sure you don't get obese. Like, why not just have us eat healthy foods to begin with? Leave the McDonald's alone. Put the soda down. No more potato chips. And then maybe we won't be so obese. Now, stress, racism, white supremacy, not getting enough rest. There's a lot of other factors that contribute to that. But I mean, Ooh, we can make a lot of progress. No more fried chicken challenges and all the rest of it. Fruits, veggies, plant-based diet. We can make a lot of progress. I don't really see white people pushing that in areas where black people live. Maybe I haven't been to enough areas. I've been stuck in Seattle too long, maybe. Uh, let's see. Uh, if folks would take about five minutes to share their thoughts, questions, observations, that would be grand. Just to make sure everyone gets at least one chance to speak. Uh, if you are in a noisy environment, if you could please use your mute button just to make sure we don't have to p- compete with a lot of unnecessary background noise. Uh, you can 
share your thoughts, observations, and then mute. And then if you have additional commentary, just unmute and continue to share. Uh, also, uh, for this one broadcast uh, request, if we could not use metaphors, uh, frequently we heard quite a few of them even within the segment here frequently uh, black and white things are not black and white when they were talking about the Haitians at the Texas border whatever that means things are not black and white in that context racists will regularly use metaphors and analogies of that sort to cause confusion Uh, victims myself included frequently We are still learning, so sometimes we don't have all the logic necessary to articulate our views. We will substitute an analogy, metaphor, comparison of some sort. Often that just produces more confusion. Uh, If we could work to be precise, exact, specific with our word choice, that would be appreciated. I will prompt about the metaphors. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see. First few folks who dialed in, you have commentary to share. Line should be open. Can I be heard? Greetings, Rob in California. Uh, greetings, guests, and to the rest of the listeners and callers. Um, it's been a pretty tough week um, in the uh, worldwide system of white supremacy. Um, so to start off, um, I'm under COVID protocol right now. I've been off of work for a week. Um, I experienced some cold symptoms, uh, stuffy nose, runny nose, and a little congestion. Um, It went away in like two days, uh, but I can't go back to work until um, the results of my COVID test come back. Um, So it had me kind of frustrated because like with the pandemic being worldwide and so many people being affected by it, it wasn't as easy to get a COVID test done as I thought it would be. Um, I couldn't go through my primary care provider uh, to get the COVID test done. Um, Most of the uh, COVID testing in the area where I am is done through appointment online. And then when I did go online to try to schedule the COVID test, um, I wasn't getting any results. I ended up going through um, a free testing COVID site where um, it was at a community center. And it was like, like a bunch of people lined up on the side of the road waiting to get into this place. And, um, you know, when you went inside the COVID testing facility, um, the way that the um, nurses or the people 
administering the COVID test, um, like the way that they was talking to me, uh, really stood out to me. Um, they was talking to me like um, I wasn't that intelligent, and um, that <clears throat> that got me that got me kind of upset um, because you know all that you're doing is just taking a swab, putting it in your nose, and, you know, you're breaking it off and putting it in the tube. And, um, like, the, the way I was treated, um, I, it, it really stood out to me. Um, and standing in the line, um, like, they said it was, you didn't have to pre-register, but when the people, like the workers that were doing the COVID testing, when they came out, it was you still had to basically pre-register. Um, you had to put in some stuff like information on your cell phone. You had to scan something and then put the information in. And so I was the only black person in the line, in a long line of people. I'm talking about like a line stretched around the block. And um, so I'm standing there like, so I'm in California and, you know, it's hot. <laughs> so it was like a little bit of shade. And so I'm like standing like in the bushes, but you can tell that I'm still in line because I'm trying to get a little bit of the shade. And so when the non-white people classified as not black, but non-white. When they came out, they walked right past me. And so I had to stop the uh, lady that was classified as black and be like, hey, man, you know, what's up? Like, why them people, like, you know, walking right past me? And, you know, she gave a little chuckle and was like, oh, it's probably because you're standing in the bushes, you know, whatever, whatever. And, um, you know, I found that very interesting. And um, at that time, I was talking to my brother and you know, my brother here in Philadelphia, and he really don't pay attention to current events that much, but he said something to me because, he you know, I pay attention to the nose and everything. He was like, man, uh, you see what's going on with the people in Haiti? And I'm like, uh, yeah, you know what you mean? He was like, man, you know, they're over there treating them like slaves. <laughs> and I was like, man, you know, it ain't, you know what I'm saying, they're not treating us like that. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what we are. And so, like those images, um, happen to see those images of white men on horseback with the black people, um, that really disturbed my soul. Um, and, you know, I don't know, um, you know, like, I don't know if people really understand um, the oppression that black people, people classified as African-American black. I don't know if we really understand the oppression that we are still under. And so this situation with the um, Haitian people, um, man, you know, um, I'm going to leave it right there. I'm leaving my line. Thank you for taking my call. 
Much obliged, uh, Rob in Wisconsin. I uh, hope you are doing as best you can to take care of your health and well-being uh, under really um, terroristic circumstances. Um, standing in the bushes, they said, not in the shade, hot weather, in the bushes. Like, yes, ready to leap out and mug someone. Um, what you shared now. That is a part of the terrorism in terms of going to the COVID testing uh, facility uh, to get this test or what have you. And saying that you got really just shabby treatment that has been repeated a number of times. Uh, They had it was a black doctor uh, towards the end of 2020. She ended up uh, dying. But before she transitioned, she did a whole video uh, where she talked about how she got really poor treatment from the staff and that she thought it was racist. And then after she died. They said, well, she was intimidating. So that has been standard operating procedure. And I think we've even had some cows listeners who subject uh, who have submitted maybe these uh, disparities that they are referencing. Maybe it's because the black people are getting racist treatment. Coon man. When they go in for testing or other procedures, and maybe that's exacerbating things. Seems lucid to me. But again, I hope you are, are doing as best you can. Uh, it, use it, man. It's been trying uh, every day, all of this, all year long um, for lots of folks all over the world. So, yeah, I hope you are doing as best you can under uh, really trying circumstances, sir. Uh, other folks who dialed in uh, with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, launch should be open. Hello? Uh, yes, ma'am. We can hear you. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, so, the need thing to add, um, I wanted to start off by talking about the obesity due to the pandemic. Um, it's really sad to hear that half the people that have obesity are black, but it's not surprising. Um, and it's also not surprising that they're trying to push a pill to help with their obesity. Um, this is how white people get us dependent on them to help us to solve our problems. Um, but most of our problems are due to the food that we're eating, where we're living, because that area usually doesn't provide good food. But bottom line is white, white people are most to blame for that. As for the farmers, um, so black farmers have been severely mistreated for over a century. And it sounds like uh, what they're trying to do is almost like a sharecropping situation. Uh, they give loans, like huge loans to these black farmers if they give them a loan. And they're not supposed to be able to pay it back just like they did to the sharecroppers. Um, but it was a, it was good to hear that um, the, uh, the person, the victim speaking, was able to neutralize his racist by using an iPhone. And uh, also I wanted to add that um, when I heard the USDA, I just substituted the USDA for assisting the white supremacy. So it made it much more clear when I was listening to that segment. Um, as for the highway thing, um, it sounds like uh, what Mr. Fuller always says is that 
You should invest in less things and always be ready to move. Um, as for the New York segment, you should definitely stay home and not go out to eat, not take vacations. Staying home is the safest thing to do right now, especially during this time. Uh, I didn't get to hear much about the Haitians um, in Mexico. I myself is, uh, uh, well, I am of Haitian descent. So um, hearing about how they're treated, um, it's really difficult. Um, Racial slurs. Uh, We need to, like, think about a better way to handle racial slurs. So as an attempted parent, uh, I'm already thinking about how I'm going to speak to my children, about how to handle them and what to do. And then the return of slavery. Um, I just noticed that the victim was very confused. Um, and uh, like you said, there's a cowbell because she has a white parent. Um, and then she, I think she knows that she's non-white because she said that she cried when she heard about the slavery petition. So she knows that she would be mistreated if she was born during that time. Um, as for all... Uh, I think there was a few times where safety was brought up. I think with the Barry Washington Jr. in Utah, safety was brought up. Um, they think the white supremacy are just not safe in the system of white supremacy. And then uh, I think for the Massachusetts uh, rape victim, um, who is, I put victim in quotes. Um, uh, she is now learning, which I don't believe that she is actually learning about anything. She she already knew that she was being racist by identifying this victim as her perpetrator. Um, and she's trying now to be a white savior after all these years. And my only question is, how long do they be racist, incarcerated black man for? being a white woman. That's all my comments. Much obliged. Um, That is important. That's something we've talked about on neutralizing workplace racism, like a bunch, uh, a safety of late, just yesterday, and then responding to uh, racial slurs, racist insults. I think that's so important because, they. I mean, they were at least two or three of those uh, within the report. We had the one at the high school at the football game uh, and then the incident at the restaurant uh, in New York that also said that I think the hostess used some sort of racial slur. So uh, I'm of the opinion that uh, responding with any sort of violence, like I know some people who say, hey, you know, you go upside that white person's head, you know, choke slam them. I'm of the opinion that that doesn't work. Uh, What happened in uh, the situation in New York, the only people who were arrested and charged were the black people. So I have not seen where that works. And that's generally what happens in those type of situations. Uh, I would say, number one, white people are dangerous for a variety of different reasons. Now, if you encounter someone who is classified as white and they call you a nigger, 
they might have more than just words intended for you. So that is certainly something to keep in mind. Like depending on the context, it might mean run, evacuate. I think that was the E. That's my, that may be what it means. If it's in a workplace setting, you know, you may want to ask questions. You may want to document, record. Um, it would certainly be dependent on the situation. But above and beyond everything, composure and safety. Go back to that S word again. Like white people are dangerous. And once you've got a racist who is calling you a nigger or whatever it is, whatever the, the racial slur is like, woo making a set like whoa I might be in imminent danger like whoa let me take this really serious and then you know whatever code that your parents or whatever that you've come up with should kick in but like danger danger might need to you know flee the scene or you know might be more than just words in store but that's super important if you have offspring talk to your children about that how do you want them to respond i can't emphasize that enough composure i just i haven't seen any examples where a black person getting called a nigger and then responding you know with a, a headbutt or an elbow smash and it worked out great you know people fussed at the white person and that black person got like scholarships or i don't know a business license i haven't seen that happen uh as for the hey i think we had uh both rob in california uh, and uh, Vegan RD, uh, both of them commenting about the abuse of the Haitian migrants. There is no way in the universe I could conceive if it was like reverse. And so Canada was at the southern border. There is no way I could conceive if these were white people at the border for any reason, this being the way that they would be treated in no way shape form for the Biden it is so convenient they will cut it's total medical apartheid element to this too there were so many different reports about this some of them they were just talking about the image of the uh, lashing having a whip and lashing at these black people and then other reports were going into more detail about how they ended up at the Texas border and you know will they be allowed to stay and all this it was lots of you know yammering hand wringing about all of this pretend white outrage but President Joe Biden, what he said, he said, if you don't vote for me, you're not black. President Biden was sending these black people back saying, oh, man, we got a covid risk. Now, I have not heard of Haiti being a hotspot for the Rona. Now, maybe it is. I you know, am not an expert on covid-19 or anything else, but I've heard lots this is the hot like they would be in danger coming here. There has been no point in the last two years where I have heard like, whoa, if you think the states is bad with the Rona, wait till you see Haiti. I've not heard that at all anywhere in the Caribbean. In fact, it would be the other way around. Like, man, mask up, get your sanitizer. If you could smuggle in some toilet paper, that would be great, too, because we're about to have a shortage. That's the way the dialogue should be going. Not, oh, no, we got to send these niggers back. They got the Rona. Are you kidding me? What's the extra teaspoon? Give them a vaccine on the way. Make There you go. Vaccine is important. Make that condition for entrance. Yeah, yeah, forget all that. Just you got to be vaccinated to come in. There you go promote the vaccine you got to come and do the uh the vax that thing up haitian remix lots of ways they could have done it nope get on the plane and then put those images out 
like I said, they wouldn't do that if these were white people lashing them like we took traveled back in time. We're talking about that metaphor like this is uh, formal plantation days, 1700s. So Vegan um, RD. Kind of sounds. It kind of sounds like the slavery petition <laughs> happening over there. I mean, it's not funny, but like it sounds like slavery is pretty ba- much back. Like it's horrible. But if we live in a uh, system of racist supremacy, then we are all slaves. Absolutely. And I'm very comfortable with call, identifying myself as a slave because it's true. It could be me, Ethel, just like uh, the young lady said at Park Hill South High School, who I thought was. Too, that's a good point, too. Where I think that was vegan RD. She was saying that she said she was a tanned white person, tanned Caucasian first. And then she said when they were doing the slavery uh, lesson and she started crying like that could have been me. Like, wait a minute. I thought you were a tanned white person. Confusion. She has a white cowbell I should have put the cowbell there should have put the cowbell uh, but the uh, the image uh, of that black person or the Haitian immigrants at the border uh, being lashed like that is total intent of terrorism I mean and to have that for white people to be looking at that with everything that's happening right now black people to be looking at that with everything that's happening right now black people all over the known universe that's the end particularly to still get to attach that this is how we treat Haitians all over the world even if they escape from the island we're still going to punish them and send them right back like consistent well I think um, it's more like this is how we treat black people all over the world for sure for sure. I think they have a, a, a special uh, treatment, it seems, for folks who are classified as Haitians. But absolutely, this is uh, how black people are treated worldwide. Absolutely correct. Hello. May I be heard? <clears throat> uh, Irie. Irie. Yes, ma'am. All right. Hotep. Sanut. Uh, Hina. Sin. Uh, uh, greetings, brothers and sisters. And um want to add real quick, it's not a good time to travel for a variety of reasons, not just your vaccine passport. Um, I wanted to let you know, Gus, um, that there was a train derailment, Amtrak, uh, three passenger cars derailed. Um, I remember where in Montana, it was in Montana. Land flat on their sides, on ground, off the rail. I'm sure there were injuries. I'm sure there may have been at least one fatality. Um, last time I got on a train, there were no seatbelts. Um, so you have that. While you were posting the article about what happened in New York with the non-white people at the restaurant, I looked it up. And um, ABC News in New York, one of the stations there, practiced racism by airing the clip from the uh, footage of one of the victims grabbing the white lady 
um, and being surrounded by black people, which uh, would be internalized by a white person as a mob, especially a white person. Um, but this is the uh, racist part. They showed the video to two victims of racism, I would assume black, and the white male reporter asked immediately, what do you think about this? And she was like, you know, everybody has to do their part. I don't think it's right. They, all they did was ask to see your vaccine card. And, you know, we're all trying to protect each other. And then they uh, showed the clip again of the mob action. And <laughs> they had the ladies, I guess it was her son or younger brother. She, he looked younger. You know, we're trying to open New York and, you know, enjoy ourselves and, you know, it's going to take getting the vaccine. So, I mean, this is really unfortunate, you know, the articulate Negroes. And I'm not putting them down, but they're trying to do a contrast between those people that were from Houston and the people that they spoke with because they were um, shades literally in color, in color value. They were shades lighter than the people I saw on the video. So there was colorism, anti-blackness by way of colorism and confusion. <laughs> There's that report. I have been doing my best to become as natural as possible since everything happened with Ida. That includes um, getting more aggressive with agriculture. I visited a chicken coop to find out what to do. Um I I'm getting more accustomed to being in the elements. I'm learning breathing techniques to do so um, for cold and hot. There was a time when our ancestors were on the continent and it, the temperatures were hotter than they were now, and somehow these people survived. If they can do it, I think I think I can do it too. It's going to take practice and um, you know uh, incremental exposure, but. Either way, along with my pursuits, I've looked into their uh, solar uh, generator on Indiegogo. I would uh, uh, enlist people to look up. It's pricey, I will admit. About $2,000 will get you um, this solar generator where you can plug in about four appliances or computers or whatever. And it has some USB slots for um, electronics and then the solar panels charged within four hours in all light conditions. Um, as far as um, the immigrants in from uh, IT at the border of Mexico, there are African immigrants as well at stuck at the border um, that have traveled from as far as Sudan. That is how bad the conditions of white supremacy is on the global stage. I guess that's a metaphor. I'll take it back. That's how much they've caused havoc on the continent, on islands, so forth, so on. Um, something else I was going to say. Uh, I just, it's frustrating. I see a lot of, it's just, I'm praying to the ancestors and to uh, the all in all for the uh, epiphany where we we come to grips with understanding the system 
how it works, and then also understanding and agreeing to the point of action that it's illegitimate and it does not have to be, and we can choose to do something else. You know, there's too much suffering. It's unnecessary. Um, I can't remember. It was one other thing I wanted to say, but, uh, you know, we have to we have to take measures in our own hands. There's trash piling up in the city of New Orleans. I was talking to a friend about it. I said, you know what? Your neighborhood, you need to find somebody with a truck, throw that man some money, and have him to take that trash down for y'all to the dump. Don't let it sit there. I said, it's obvious the government, municipalities, state and federal, is no longer in the business of the public trust. They're not into public service, and they're not into public safety. We're going to have to do it ourselves. Growing food, keeping our ecosystems and our our places that we live, work, and, and, and be, making it thrive on our own. Because eventually we're, we're already seeing the disintegration of the socialism that's supposed to keep the country together. We've seen it many times over. It's the the system is is they're divesting out of the the little bit that they used to do. And it's all going toward them doing whatever they do that I'm not in the room when they make those plans. But we see it. We need to accept it and start acting so we don't die because this is no way to go out. In America, I can't speak for the other countries, but in America, we are better than this to go out so pitifully. And I'm eating my line. Thank you. Much obliged, Irie. Uh, the number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, they say, uh, what's that tacky metaphor? Uh, misery loves company uh, or cliche. Uh, there are folks in North Carolina and other regions throughout the U.S. where they also are not picking up the trash, or at least they're not doing it in a timely manner. Uh, we had folks who said this all seems to be related to the Rona in some way, but they say they have a shortage of workers and all the rest uh trash used to be picked up promptly tuesday morning before 9 a.m trash is gone bin is empty this time around you'd be lucky if they got your trash by wednesday so lots of folks are having that frustration of trash being piled up in the street feeling abandoned by their municipality uh, that is a great suggestion. The solar generator that came up last year. Uh, folks had power outages. I think there are some folks in the Louisiana area who still are having power troubles. We had the segment on energy uh, in Louisiana, uh, New Orleans specifically. Uh, and folks were talking about having a generator, a non-toxic generator that won't kill the whole family, uh, that works uh, when it should, works as it should, and hey, if you can get a, a generator where you don't have to risk life and limb to get gas, 
every you know day or whatever it is hey that is something to think about i know there were a lot there was a shooting at the gas station people like this was two three weeks ago so this is when many more people did not have power uh there was a killing or, or a fatal shooting at a gas station folks going to get those generators filled up so it yeah lots to think about solar generator might be something to at least uh investigate uh let's see uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary to share, uh, lines should be open. Uh, not for spectators. Let's see. While folks are getting their thoughts together, uh, I'll make sure I already recommended uh, Melvin Van Peebles classified X documentary I know we have lots of folks who uh, are interested in documentary films uh, and you know like to research what have you certainly lots of folks who are interested in entertainment uh, entertainment and white supremacy explicitly and Mr. Van Peebles narrates the whole project it's online classified X uh, if you have a spare moment and are interested especially if you're in the book club then you should definitely watch if you are not uh, reading along uh, for Woody Allen's uh, autobiography and you need a film to watch everything you wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask that's the movie came out in 1972 Woody Allen um, he just meant in fact the context he mentioned this film in his book uh, I'm not a like student of Woody Allen films or his books or anything else um, this is the first I'd even heard of this movie. Um, but the little that I did know about his movies and what have you, reading his book and hearing the people that he's cast and then the films that I've seen related to this, it doesn't look like Woody Allen, you know, has a, a huge number of black employees that hop in front of the camera for his movies. That doesn't seem to be the case. Maybe I've missed them. This one time, this one movie everything you wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask he makes a to-do uh, about hey we had someone else hired a white woman interestingly for this role she was exotic there was a problem so I had to replace her and I needed someone who was exotic he says the word again and so he gets this black male Jeffrey Holder uh, who is now deceased but he gets him because he's exotic looking to play the role of the sorcerer if you have a spare moment, if you're into films, and from a, and this is not just to watch and get your popcorn away. This is like I'm gonna take some notes. Like, what do you see about this character in this film in general? Um, it does the title I think says sometimes they say uh, the uh, you can't judge a book by the cover. The title I think says it all. Uh, the sexual perversions of white culture, the system of white supremacy, on full display. But yeah, if you watch it, let us know. Uh, Book Club will be Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, let's see, while folks are getting there, th speaking of Melvin Van Peebles, in the segment where they had his son on, Mario Van Peebles, uh, film uh, legend, really, in his own right, filmmaker, legendary filmmaker, doing uh, New Jack City. He did Badass, which is about his father's uh, film work. And in fact, 
Mario Van Peoples did the film Panther, not to be confused with Marvel's Black Panther. We just talked about Panther, which starts about the Black Panther Party. It's a uh, dramatization, they say. But it starts with a black child being hit and killed by a car at an intersection where they were trying to get a stop sign, a crosswalk. We had just talked about all that, but that's how that is Mario Van Peebles uh, film on the Black Panther Party. We just talked about that. Uh, anywho, um, in the segment that we heard where they were talking about the passing of Melvin Van Peebles, the announcer said that uh, Mr. Van Peebles had influenced many of, um, of the American civil rights movements plural I said now that's interesting did he he influenced the so-called uh, LGBTQ movement as well maybe I guess I'm not sure uh, interestingly enough the New York Times uh, area 8 man uh, and anything I think someone asked before like do we not understand maybe seeing what happened at the border with the black people, Haitian immigrants, not we're, we're not seeing that. We're seeing that and not really understanding. We are slaves. That could be us, like in the next five minutes. I don't think. I think the vast majority. Dr. Welsing, she she used to say regularly, 99% of the non-white people, black people, non-white, non-black people, 99% of the non-white people do not understand white supremacy racism what it is how it works it's most flagrantly on display with us being so reckless with children i think if if we even had if we had a half an idea of what all of this entails the layers of terrorism that have been rehearsed for our demise we would be a lot more careful about producing a black child it would be planned. It would be absurd to just be reckless with producing a black child in a system of terror. You could be producing a child that's going to be lashed on the board, and that'll just end up being the time photo of the year. Lashing Negroes at the Texas border. Mm. Look at the clarity on that. You can really see the leather in the whip. You would not be producing throwaway. We would not be producing throwaway children. That's where I'd point to most specifically. We do not understand at all. Anywho, uh, but civil rights movements, plural. I'm, I'm not even sure I've heard that too many times. Uh, where it's I've, Civil rights movement. That's what I've, I think I've always heard. Like I would struggle if you really pressed me. Civil rights movements. Hmm. And Melvin, Melvin Van Peebles influenced these movements, plural. Fascinating. Uh, let's see. Uh, other folks, uh, thoughts they want to get into folks uh, spectating? Let's see. Can I add something really quick about energy that I forgot to mention? This is Irie. Yes, ma'am. Okay. I'm making it, make it quick. Energy, I'm not surprised with that report at all because Energy, basically, what they have done for at least the past 10 years, along with overcharging New Orleans residents, um, they also overcharge uh, people in other places, other states, for power plants that don't get built. They add 
the cost of the plant. They added the cost to the plant to every bill. I can't remember what state. And then they didn't build it. But then the charge was still on these people's bills. Um, Intergy also has um, a nuclear reactor. I believe it's called the Denver Yankee Reactor that the NRC, and forgive me, I don't remember what it stands for, but it's a regulatory body for nuclear reactors that are used for energy in the United States. They're always citing energy energy for something that is not going right. Uh, the things that's supposed to cool the coils and, or, the, or the core isn't working right or you know, something's happening where the spent fuel isn't being stored correctly. They, they make their business model is discrepancy and, and they're just, it's a criminal enterprise. Uh, when we had Anitra Brown, uh, she's one of your fellow uh, Louisianans uh, on the program. Uh, she was in Texas at the time, but uh, she was expressing a very similar sentiment, uh, talking about how much the exorbitant prices that are charged uh, for energy uh, in that area. And then the really substandard survey. In fact, she even quoted, she said that they pay more than almost anywhere in this area of the world in terms of energy. Uh, and then just having really substandard services. And in fact, it jogged my memory uh, metaphor, as they say. Uh, so we've been on the air 12 years. We were on the air when they had the Super Bowl in New Orleans. That was Ray Lewis against Colin Flippin Kaepernick. Take a knee on it. The highlight before they had the goal line stand and Ray Lewis stops that old no count Kaepernick at the goal line. So he can get his second Super Bowl and walk off into retirement. But before all that, there was a power failure at the Superdome in New Orleans. Folks talked about that then. This is 10 years ago. Folks talked about or not almost 10 years ago. Yeah. Folks talked about that then and said, man, what kind of uh energy system did they have down there and the infrastructure is terrible like what do you got you just have a power that's so embarrassing like that's so third world like to have a power outage in the middle of the super bowl you got millions of people all over the world and we got a pause for a blackout said not to use that term before racist implications right on we got a pause for disruption in service in New Orleans. I don't think such a thing has ever happened. I can't remember it at a, a the Super Bowl or World Series type event. You got a power outage in the same place where they have exorbitant some of the highest energy bills on the continent. Deliberate, deliberate, as she said, making excuses not to upgrade. Let's see. Oh, I wanted to well, two things I was going to include. Let's see. One, the Amtrak derailment uh, from CNN. At least three people are dead after an Amtrak train derailed in Montana. Uh, three people are dead. Uh, authorities would not speak on the number of injured or the extent of their injuries. A statement from the railway said five cars from Amtrak's Empire Builder train 727 derailed near Joplin, Montana. Pacific Northwest, injuring an undisclosed number of passengers. Man, 
not a good time to travel. This is supposed to be an unlikely occurrence, but hey, not a good time to travel. I said, hey, avoid the plane, take the train. This is, you know, kind of a rare thing, but still not a good time to travel. Postpone that vacation. The other point I was going to bring up really quick. Uh, if folks are just spectating, we can, you know, wrap up a little early and folks can enjoy their Saturday in a safe manner or get early rest. The other point I was going to bring up that incident that happened in New York, uh, I think someone had mentioned it and said that the, the, uh, hostess in this situation, they were, uh, victims, black people was a white person. Uh, I've seen several reports where the hostess was identified as Asian. Um, I'm just pulling one. I could have pulled, you know, any number, but I'm just pulling. This is uh, news 10 ABC in New York. Uh, let's see. Let's see if I can go to this specific sentence here. Okay. A spokesperson for Carmine's. That's the restaurant where this happened. Said the hostess who is Asian walked past the women who were seated and told them to enjoy their meal. None of the attackers attackers offered any reason for their attack. <laughs> um, but anyway, there are several others that, that uh, submit that this was uh, a so-called Asian female and several others that said that uh, the two hostesses that were working that evening were both non-white. One was black and then the other is Asian female. So, yeah, I suspect that will be a major part of their reasoning as to why this was not racism uh, because it wasn't even a white person who's being, you know, accused. Folks can, I'm not sure if folks got to see that because I, I think it was uh, pretty common uh, in terms of many outlets saying that it was a white person who was accused uh, and that being the way that people talked about the event and reported the event. But I have seen several where she was identified as uh, the hostess as Asian. So we'll see how that factors into all of this. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up our caller, caller down in Florida should be with us as well. Yes, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. I just wanted to share just uh, not too much, but I was listening. Um, and now that Gus, you just uh, gave that update about the classification. Uh, I do agree with the uh with everything that's going on right now it is more intensely uh dangerous for i would say especially for um black victims of racism non-white people of course but like black victims of racism with the amount of anti-blackness that just uh that's been uh shown in the reports in the audio and from what's happening at the border and everything, um, the system of white supremacy has these images being shown on a constant basis. Uh, and I think about when that, uh, the situation where 
they were on the they were doing the horseback and being uh, very aggressive and violent towards the uh, Haitian people, and I don't remember seeing that kind of aggression toward any other group, at least not to that degree. And another uh, segment where I think that might have been at one of the schools where they were talking about the the slavery petition. And I just remember hearing someone say that someone said something was a joke. I don't know. I could be uh, referring to the incorrect segment, but that's definitely a common one. Doesn't seem to have changed very much. Well, well, hey, you know, it was just a joke. They didn't really mean it. Um, and it seems to be very effective. And they get a lot of the victims to go along with that reasoning to rationalize um, racist, white supremacist conduct. Uh, and I've just really just been doing some thinking and studying and trying to do more reading too. I want to put that out there, reading and drinking more water, eating better and everything like that, doing more writing. Uh, and just my last thing I want to say, um, the news uh, this week used that term, missing white woman syndrome, about the white female missing. Uh, and I'm just watching a segment where they're talking about this and there are other people that are missing. They use the term people of color. You know, there are black people are missing, non-white people are missing, and nobody is talking about the reasoning for why this is, right? So they're pointing out this term, but they want to say, why is that? Why is it uh, a tremendous emphasis on when a white woman is missing, a white person is missing, and when there is someone who is not white that is missing, they don't show that same uh, that same attention to them. See, but that you know that's also part of the system. That's the racism itself. Uh, and other than that, that's all I have to share right now. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Much obliged, caller in Florida. That uh, deflection. To, oh, we were just kidding around. We were just joshing little tomfoolery you take a joke that one is not a hundred percent but i mean super effective about 90 percent of the time they end up turning things so that the victim is oh man they're just sensitive you know they just can't take a joke we just play around a little bit just just kidding around super offended and the other white people just pile right in like oh it was in poor taste it was a bad joke I think they said the students uh, in this situation they they had the petition to reinstate slavery now the victim this is the one with the white parent she said she thought it was a bad joke it seemed that the other students they thought this was hilarious talked about those racist jokes for years Let's see. The Oh, and the joke now when they say 
missing white woman syndrome. Pam wrote about that. Uh, we talked about that years back. Trojan Horse uh, Publications, the late Pamela Evans Harris. Uh, but exactly right in terms of now what is producing this phenomenon where if a white woman or white girl goes missing, then everybody stops and we got to posse up and go search. Did you have anybody else, non-white person, black person, child, female, male, doesn't matter. Yeah, yawn, you know, we'll get around to it when we get around to it. What is producing that? Exactly, as I did see a lot of commentary on that. Much of it didn't even say racism, white supremacy. Um, they had one, they had the metaphor, I think for NPR, they said, uh, the media feeds on itself with regards to, and they didn't even say missing white woman syndrome. They just had the young white woman's name. Let me make sure I, I get the exact report so people won't say that I am messing this up here. Let's see. So it was public and media feed off each other's obsession with Gabby Petito, Petito case. Racism, white supremacy not said at all. Not that I expected white supremacy to be said, but no mention of racism. Obsession feed off each other. That's even some necrophilia there feeding off of the dead carcass of this white child. Like what? Just paying attention to words. Let's see. I'm just checking the actual report to see if they mention racism here at all as to what is producing this. Nope. No mention of racism at all. Do they even say race in what's in this? Let's see. Do we have one mention of race even? Yikes. It looks like there may not be a mention even of race in there. Oh, let's see. One question. Uh, yeah, one time race will come up and that's not racism, white supremacy at all. That's what I mean. Not being serious. Uh, that's why compensatory call-in, we try as best we can. It is the beginning of knowledge to call things by their proper name, to be precise, and to avoid using a lot of metaphors and things, because a lot of times that just helps with the deception. Try to be as accurate as we can, precise, specific as we can with uh, words. That is a challenge, you know. That's something everybody, myself included, still learning. Uh, let's see. Other folks, uh, any other comments? Observations, questions they want to make sure they get in for the broadcast. Let's see. Let's see. Folks might be satisfied. Let's see. Don't see any hands. Uh, we should be here to I'm not sure if we'll be wrapping up Woody Allen's apropos of nothing this coming Thursday or not. I have to see how much of the book is left. I know we are getting close to the end. Either it'll be all done this Thursday or we'll have two sessions left. Uh, again, if anybody reading is more important than watching television, I highly recommend. I think that was our caller down in Florida said he's working on drinking more water and reading more spectacular a pluses all the way around that's something they could have mentioned in the segment on obesity that is an easy one right there as opposed to let's find a pill that we can get you you know an infinite prescription for we have to take these for the next 60 years uh why not just hey 
No more sodas, no more fruit drinks, other non-water concoctions. Drink water. See if you can get a gallon a day. See if you can find one of those uh, gallon water bottles. That right there will help lots of people. A lot of times people, Dr. Uh, Lathan talked about that. A lot of times people eat, overeat when they are really dehydrated and they're eating thinking that that's what the problem is and that's not the case. They just need to drink more water. They could have mentioned that one. Easy one. Drink more water. If you find yourself drinking sodas and all that, see if you can eliminate all of the non-water beverages from your intake so that you only consume water. That's the only beverage you drink for that right there. If you stick to that for six months, I'm sure lots of people will notice a huge change in how they feel, weight, lots of different things. Uh, just drinking more water. A lot cheaper than a pill. Anywho, um, but we should wrap up the book club, if not this week, next week. So if you've done your reading and you have time, are interested in watching a movie for counter racist purposes, everything you wanted to know about sex, but were afraid to ask. It's available. I'm not sure if it's on Netflix or not. I have to double check. I know it's online. Like it took like seconds to find it. I'd never even heard of the film. Like I said, it came out in 1972. You should be able to easily find it online. People love, love, love Woody Allen. I think people like this film. Jeffrey Holder is the black male. Uh, he's the sorcerer in the film. If you want something to kind of pay attention to as you move through the project, if you watch it, you can send me your uh, analysis or notes, you know, whatever it is. Uh, and we'll share for the book club. I'm going to watch the film uh, sometime between now and Thursday. So I'll also have my notes ready to roll for uh, the book club on Thursday. Uh, you can check uh, Facebook, Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, I'll also post. I'll, I'll post on social media. We do broadcast between now and Thursday, as uh, so we wrap up the summer weather and September. Hopefully, uh, you can maybe get outside and do some reading. Folks are saying that it's still hot in California and warm in areas where you are. Maybe get out, do some hiking so you can get a little bit of exercise. That also would be way better than a pill. Increase your exercise, right? They could have recommended that. Exercise, activity, get that metabolism going. Maybe get you away from the house where you could just be eating just because you're you know, bored, not really doing anything. Maybe that's better than a pill, too. Water, exercise, go a long way. Anyway, maybe you can get out, enjoy some sunshine, and then do some reading at the beach or, I don't know, out on a park, trail, something where you can enjoy the last little remnants before it gets uh, kind of frosty for most of us. Anywho, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Uh, we have lots of problems. We will need high-level thinking to get those answers. In addition to being sober, man, if you're going out and about, uh, I would be really alert, super cautious. Tell if you have offspring, let them know, share some of the information with them so they can just be abreast about things that are happening. It is super dangerous right now. It's not the time to just kind of be going out carefree, not paying attention to what's happening around you. If somebody is being loud and hostile, this is not a time for verbal confrontations with strangers. Exit. That's what you want to be thinking. If you need to call enforcement officials or whatever it is, you can do that as you are exiting. Evacuate. That's what it is, the E. Uh, if 
you should be thinking that this person might be armed, might have an armed entourage. If you didn't leave your house prepared to kill and or die, exit. That's what you should be thinking. Safety. Uh, if you are going to be going out, if you're driving, you are not on the cell phone. Buckled up. Sober. Uh, just to, trying to do the small things that we can to avoid contact with race soldiers, badge or no. With that said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person no name calling no gossiping again my opinion flying not a safe thing to do right now traveling period vacations can be postponed it is not really safe hunker down postpone all that until later on you can save those sky miles and such replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.